Hey guys, what's up? Week 153 here, and let's just start this off with the contest drawing for the Slaughterhouse Slumber Party. Um, yeah, we're gonna hop into this. Right now, we got two winners. Uh, so, I got 42 entries. Um, let's see who wins. Why, why screw around? Let's just start right off. So, uh, alright. I made them really small. So, we have uh, Bu, uh, Passholt. Oh, Bo, Bo Passholt. Um, yeah, I have your address. I should have it. I don't know if that's showing up for you guys. And we have number two. I'm going to make sure I don't look. Number two is Don uh, Quixote. <laughs> Good name. Don Quixote, Don Quixote. So, uh, yeah. So, congrats, guys. I'll ship that out. I have not shipped out the Patreon ones yet, either. It's going to wait to ship them out together. I might actually reuse some of the old packaging I got, because I really don't want to go to the store during this time just to get shipping packages. I think that's kind of, you know, uh, probably inappropriate. But, okay, I guess also, you know what, with all these, um, you know, uh, problems going on, there's a lot of indie directors out there who are kind of, you know, struggling a little bit. So I wanted to take a time to shout out uh, a Blu-ray of, her name was Krista, which I actually reviewed, but I haven't got a chance to check out the Blu-ray, but I, I did get this a while ago, and it is available. I'm just letting you guys know. It has a bunch of features on there. This is actually the film debut of James L. Edwards, who is an actor and stuff, saw a bunch of the Tempe stuff, like Bloodletting, and uh, this has audio commentary. Indiegogo video, uh, Search of Christina, Two Minutes, Auditions and Rehearsals, uh, Stevens Interrogation, Deleted and Extended Scenes, Drew Proposes, Alan Has Some Time to Kill, The Missing Track, uh, Amerisision video and trailers. It has a bunch of stuff on here. It's a nice release. Double side um, on there, too. Double disc. And it also includes an alter uh, and slip cover that switches, which is a really cool one, kind of in the style EC Comics. I really enjoyed this one. I thought it was a really great kind of twisted love story horror movie. Um, and I think that a lot of people would enjoy it if they check it out. It's actually um, very well done. So I'll leave some links below if you're interested in checking it out. So, yeah. I guess we're going to hop right into the reviews. And <laughs> I'm still with the dive in 1985, so roll that. Let me ask you a question, kid. Did you see that movie, Night of the Living Dead? Fresh bodies, fresh bodies. Would you know there's a feeling when they're stopping our life? But am I normal? Give me a 
This uh, set is actually kind of a... It has the movie on there, but it's more of the set, and it's kind of an extended version of it, but I'm going to cover Roy Frumke's Document of the Dead. It's in this Dawn of the Dead box set, which is more of an extended. It's on disc four. Okay, uh, yeah. The original Document of the Dead ran 66 minutes. This cut is a little bit longer. It adds some stuff from Two Evil Eyes, etc. But um, I, I mostly want to talk about the original documentary, which is, um, like I said, 66 minutes. It's it's released on Blu-ray now, a definitive and that version with it from Synapse. Um, so yeah, Roy Frumke's decided, first documentary I'm covering from 1985, Roy Frumke's decided to document, you know, kind of George Romero's, you know, the making of Dawn of the Dead, but it also tackles things like Night of the Living Dead as interviews with the cast and a crew. And it's narrated by no other than Susan Tyrell, who's an outstanding actress, a wonderful night warning, all sorts of things. So that's really cool. And uh, what is a crazy movie? Uh, geez, I can't, it's right on the tip of my tongue. It's Forbidden World, or Forbidden Zone, I think. Yeah, yeah, that really weird one, Entering the Fifth Dimension. But uh, essentially what what I really liked about this doc, I had seen it before, but they, they talk about Night of the Living Dead, and it, you get to know George Romero a little bit, more of his filmmaking techniques and everything like that, and his style. And there's a really interesting part in here where George Romero's talking about editing, and he says, I don't edit movies typically how they say you have to with a master, and then I go and get you know close-ups and everything like that. I just edit it how I feel I should edit it, and the coverage I get, what I feel I should get. So if it's edited very well, then no one notices these cuts that they don't think are supposed to be there. And I like that because everybody knows that George Romero used to edit. They always hear those stories about him with a cigarette in his mouth, cutting up the film back in the day, because that's usually you have to edit on film, and he was very good at that. And as I always felt that a filmmaker, I know this was kind of wrong, a true independent should do more than one thing. They shouldn't just direct. You know, maybe they edit a little bit. Maybe they write a little bit. And somebody like Romero, I'm sure, I, I love that he was editing and everything like that. Well, we shoot anywhere from 15 to 20 to 1. 
Senhores, please to let me pass. I cover uh, conversations with a master. No, no, please. Just let me pass. I go up to seventh floor to find my sister. And then with single headshots on everybody involved. People of 107 will do what you wish now. These are simple people. They have little, but they do not give it up easily. And they're dead. They give up to no one. Not so much cutaways. In other words, I'll cut to all of the people, or I'll use people as their own cutaways. Many have died last week on these threes. In the basement of this building, we find them. I have given them the last rites. Now, you do what you will. You are stronger than us. Well, soon, I think, they be stronger than you. And sometimes if I see a shot I like, I'll just go do it, almost on whim. We must stop the killing or we lose the war. Out here, shooting, I don't really think too much about the cutting. I'd rather let that happen too, except in tightly choreographed sequences like the truck scene and so forth where I know what's cutting to what. Um, he, like I said, he, he also has a great way of being highly intelligent without coming off as pretentious, which I think is a rare thing. Uh, it takes a special kind of intellect to talk to the everyday person and come across intelligent and get through. So many people want to use fancy words to get across their message, and it doesn't work with everybody. That's why I think Romero's movies come through so strong in his you know social commentary as well as his own voice when he talks about his films, and I can see that here too. So that, he's always been my favorite director, so any involving him has always made me very happy to watch and interesting. They also talk about how he uses, um, you know, he fills the, the frame, how he uses, you know, and he cuts with filling the frame very, um, you know, you know, well, like in the original Light of Living Dead, how they do the graveyard scene with Bill Heinzman's chasing Barbara and how they'll cut in certain ways and where the people appear on the frame. Like, I never thought about a lot of this stuff in terms when I watched those movies when I was young. I just knew that the movies drew me in and I didn't, you know, if it was boring visual storytelling, then you, it would lose an audience somehow Romero keeps you there and with, with his editing and things and I'm going to be honest as a young person like I never could spot sometimes you know how they you know there's a certain filmmaker like a Tarantino you always spot or a Sam Peckinpah I always spot this is a Peckinpah this is a Tarantino and Romero is my favorite director but he took me a while to find his style, which I, I understood there's a lot of social commentary but I feel like across his entire filmography the stuff that's not from Pittsburgh doesn't necessarily look or feel exactly like it, but you can spot some of his things later on and stuff like that, um, especially in his social kind of commentaries. But uh, I think in his earlier stuff, especially, there's that visual style when he edits his films. He, he didn't edit a lot of his later films, but I feel it more in his earlier stuff, that Romero style now. And, and same thing with like Wes Craven. It took me a while to pick up on him. Uh, you know, there's the booby traps and stuff, but like certain elements, but it took me a while to see his visual style. And I'm not even sure 100% if I see it. Like Carpenter's visual style is there. Sometimes these directors, it's not within their visual style.
that makes them that auteur and it's in their actual, you know, messages and things like that too. And they all, you know, not all their movies look the same. I just think a lot of Romero's earlier stuff kind of did. Um, and, and I like that Pittsburgh kind of look too. But like I said, um, he, he's an interesting guy and he has one of the lines that breaks my heart in here. And I, I don't know if this is from the original version necessarily or not. Um, I, I don't think it is actually. It might be from Two Evil Eyes. Um, no, there is a line in Dawn of the Dead when he's talking. It is from the set of Dawn of the Dead. And he, he brings up this point, Roy Frumkin says, well, night's the beginning and this is the end. He says, no, no, zombies are still dumb, man. And I love that. Like, uh, he was planning this, you know, the, the more dead films afterwards. And then later in the documentary, when he's on the set of two evil eyes, he has this really sad line where he says, the zombies keep getting smarter and I keep getting dumber by the day. And I just, um, he was, you know, self-depreciative at the same time. He was somebody that would make uh, remarks about, you know, Hollywood and everything like that. But at the same time, he never came across as someone who was just whining for attention to me. So um, R.I.P. George Romero, like I said, he was the truest of independent directors to me. And uh, wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. I like the documentary. You know, you get to see some like uh, vintage footage and Ken Forey's in there and Scott Reiniger and uh, Richard uh, uh, Rubenstein, the producer and everything. And I do like how they talk about, you know. Get, releasing the movie on rated and all that kind of stuff took guts and I'm glad they did it you know he was one of those last kind of he, I mean he was one of the first independents and he was always truly independent to me even if he did some Hollywood stuff but he just you know never could make it in the Hollywood system so and, and again uh, you know like I said there is um uh, some the, the, the end footage that they actually cut that was part of the original document of the dead this version they, they put on the end so you get to see everything from the original and some, some added stuff too so um, I, I would recommend probably picking up the definitive document of the dead which I actually ordered myself on blu-ray from synapse so I'll, I'll be checking that out to see the added stuff and everything so uh, yeah it's a pretty cool documentary especially if you're a fan of a 70 cinema or George Romero <laughs> This is a scene from Night of the Living Dead, a low-budget film co-authored, directed, photographed, and edited by George Romero in 1968. Already the head of a successful commercial production house in Pittsburgh, this was his first venture into feature filmmaking. Its flaws were mainly budgetary, while its virtues were clearly visionary, earning it popular success as a horror film and a cult following for exploratory uses of genre and technique. Style is difficult to define, but even in this disembodied clip, the technical aspects of Romero's style are making themselves apparent. They're in his cutting, his camera angles, in his two-dimensional design within the film frame. Great spatial movements from shot to shot, and even within shot. Just making films in Pittsburgh for 10 years has become a sort of stylistic statement. In January of 78, Romero and his producer, Richard Rubenstein, allowed a film crew from the School of Visual Arts onto the set of their latest production, the second part of the Dead trilogy, Dawn of the Dead. 
Using footage shot over one long weekend, a documentary took shape, focusing first on the filmmaking process and secondly on directorial vision. What part of it reaches the screen unhampered? What external forces affect it? But first, let's introduce our cast. Okay, this next one is a short from Jörg Bukaret. Uh, had to had to do his movie from '85, and this is Hot Love. This is kind of a limited edition DVD, but the Hot Love is also included in the Necromantic um, Cult Epics Blu-ray in HD. So that's really cool. So I would recommend picking up the Blu-ray from Cult Epics because uh, you know it, it um, has two versions of Necromantic on it. But let's talk Hot Love. This was the short he made before Necromantic. He had made other shorts before, and this was a Super 8 movie. And Jörg Bukaret, um, he talks about you know not wanting people to know it was Super 8 because it was kind of embarrassing. You know, it didn't seem very professional. And then later on, it seemed even more professional because it switched to digital, so that's kind of cool. But uh, Hot Love is about a 45-minute short. Um, it, the music sounds just like Necromantic. It sounds like you could have thrown that music in, in Necromantic and it would fit perfect. You know, probably the same composer. I believe it was. It actually has the same star of Necromantic in it as, as well. And he's kind of this uh, punk. Uh, it follows a group of punks and he see, he's kind of um, <laughs> lives in this kind of trashy room with beer bottles and Empire of the Ants posters hanging on the walls, that kind of thing. And uh, Jorg actually makes a funny comment in the commentary about that not being a very good movie, but it had giant ants, which I loved. <laughs> yeah, so uh, he ends up meeting this girl at this punk kind of party. They start a relationship, and we have this love story for, for quite some time. And uh, one day, he catches um, uh, his girlfriend cheating on him with Jorg Bukaret actually playing a character in this. And he gets beat up, he leaves, he's upset, and he decides one day to attack his girlfriend in the woods and rape her. Um, he basically runs away and decides to commit suicide and so you know he in and months later she gives birth and the baby's deformed and it ends up growing into this mutant that's all i pretty much spoiled everything about it but it's really hard to talk anything about this um it has some cool little things about it like in the cutesy love story like they'll put a heart in front of the camera so it's filmed like that like with like a in a heart box and everything and, and just stuff like that the music's nice and the acting's decent for what it is and um the twist is really what makes it it turns into something like tetsuo which i think was made after that so i I guess it'd be more like in the in terms of Cro, Croberg, uh, Cronenbergian kind of horror or anything like that or Cronian whatever you want to say it is um, you know kind of like mutating and everything like that um, I would even probably predate that like you know I'm sure there is stuff I know uh, was it Kafka but regardless that kind of weird body horror thing happening and reminds me a little bit of a racer head and, and combat shock at the end but it gets really weird and gory and just over the top um, strange strange movie enjoyed it actually it was pretty cool and uh, I was glad I, I kind of went in blind and just didn't have any idea what it was going to be about. But um, yeah, I, I like it. You know, it has that super eight, super eight charm to it, and it feels definitely like a precursor to Necromantic. Not quite as gross as Necromantic, and you know, some of the special effects aren't particularly great, like the pregnancy or anything like that. It's just a baby doll. But hey, whatever. It's cheap and low budget. And uh, there's a little making of on here where they talk to people about the movie. It's like three minutes and everything like that. So yeah.
okay, guys, I know what you're thinking. But Dave, you already covered this movie, and you even re-edited it back into that bonus uh, video of Dive in the 85 bonus reviews. But I couldn't not re-watch this for the Dive in the 1985, and that is Ruggiero Diodato's Cut and Run. That's right, yeah. So uh, I probably will be repeating myself a bit, but um, what I wanted to say is, you know, this is uh, a jungle adventure movie from Italy, 1985, so it's late in that kind of, um, you know, cycle, but it is the third in the Jungle Adventure movies from Ruggiero Diodato, infamous director. His first being Jungle Holocaust, which is a good movie, Cannibal Holocaust, which is a classic, and then this one. Um, Diodato would also do stuff like House on the Edge of the Park and a bunch of other crazy movies, Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. So I probably said all that before. Um, there's some interesting players in this movie that I don't think I went into depth uh, enough about in the last review. Um, Dardano Sacchietti is credited as part of the screenplay, or part, writing part of the screenplay. This guy worked with Fulci in like his heyday. A lot of Fulci's biggest movies from like the late 70s to early 80s. So all that stuff that people remember like City of the Living Dead and The Beyond and New York Ripper had Sacchietti's name on it. So that's kind of impressive that he was involved with uh, Diodato. On top of that, we have a score by Claudio Simonetti, who was, you know, obviously in Goblin, and you guys will recognize the music. It's the one I use for the Dive of the 1985. Mood 616 also used it in a bunch of his videos, so it's a very memorable song, and I just can't think of a song that gets me more pumped for 1985, or gets me more pumped in general when I hear it. It's just very uh, action-packed and action-oriented. Also, this disc, is, uh, let me go through the cast, I'm, I'm jumping all over the place, but we have Leonard Mann, who is in the Unholy Four and some other movies like that, Italian movies. Uh, he's one of the stars in here. Uh, the lady from Officer and a Gentleman is a star in here, which is kind of crazy. So we have some big names with her being Lisa Bonet, I think is her name is. Blunt, Lisa Blunt. So it's kind of a big name. Kind of threw me for a loop that she was in this. Didn't really recognize her at first. Willie Ames, who was more of a child actor, so he's really not one that uh, stood out to me. Um, Karen Black, her second movie of 85 that I've covered. I've also covered Eternal Evil. She has a, a decent-sized role in here. Richard Bright. Which is really weird to me that Richard Bright is in this movie. Because he was uh, in a couple Peckinpah movies. He was in Against All Odds, which is a really good movie with Robert Ryan. And Richard Bright's kind of a strange actor. Like I said, he was in a couple Peckinpah movies, The Getaway. And he's credited in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid as bar patron. Which shows me that um, he probably was just there having a few beers with Sam Peckinpah. Which also, this uh, special features kind of backs that story up. Because they said that Richard Bright would show up drunk. And it pissed Diodato off. And Karen Black would have to calm Diodato down. And kind of um, uh, help. Richard Bright through his day. Um, I think Richard Bright comes across pretty good in this. He's kind of the father of the missing kid who runs like a news station. So I think he does a good job, and I think that he has a nice emotional uh, role at the end with Willie Ames. So I think he did good, drunk or not. Also, another thing about Richard Bright is he actually was killed in New York City by a car. Uh, I think he was hit by a car in his like 50s or, or early late 50s, early 60s, which kind of blows my mind. So that, that's kind of a tragic end to Richard Bright. And, of course, we also have uh, Michael Berryman, uh, which is excellent. Uh, gotta love Michael Berryman. And I thought that he got involved with this movie originally because Wes Craven was going to direct. I don't think that's the case because Diodato mentions that he actually wanted him in the movie, but he couldn't think of his name. He wanted him uh, because of One Flow to Cuckoo's Nest. So, eventually, when he came in or he got a picture of him, he said, that's the guy. I gotta have him in here. So, that's cool. He's really great in this movie. He plays kind of an enforcer to the natives. He's, like, one of the American enforcers. Um, so, yeah. And also, we have Richard 
Lynch, who plays kind of a colonel type character, like uh, from um, Apocalypse Now, where he's a deserter, but he wants to take back uh, and destroy the cocaine trade and everything like that, an American kind of uh, soldier. And he also was involved in Jonestown, so that's kind of cool. And then last, um, I want to mention, oh, no, no, we got a couple more. I want. John Striner is in here, or Steiner, Striner, I always say Striner. He's in Caligula. He's the bald guy who looks very strange. He's also in Tenenbrae, uh, Dario Gentis, where he plays a crazy guy. And he plays a bad guy in a lot of movies. He's a really skinny, gaunt guy. He's pretty excellent in this as well, playing kind of a, a drug enforcer who basically makes all these slave, white people, all these slave kind of people uh, captured. Williams is captured, work for him and stuff. And he has like, you know, women he takes advantage of. Uh, Gabrielle Tinti is also in here, a husband of Lawyer Gemger. So he popped up in all the Black Emmanuel movies. He's pretty solid in this one. Um, he also died fairly young. So there's a lot of tragedy in this movie, which is kind of weird uh, as far as the acting is concerned. But uh, Gabrielle Tinti has a nice, decent-sized role in here. And last, we have, uh, I'll never remember his name, but he plays Mark Tommaso in Cannibal Holocaust. He's a pilot in here. This is very strange. This movie was actually shot in Venezuela. It wasn't shot in the typical, you know, kind of cannibal places because Diodato said that he had trouble getting, you know, that kind of place, you know, again, because where he shot previously and all the stuff that happened with Cannibal Holocaust, he really couldn't go back there. Um, so he basically shot in Venezuela. It looks gorgeous. I believe all the actors are speaking English here. And there's two cuts of the movie on here. Do not watch the censored version. I know that the uncensored version has scenes that kind of dip to standard definition, but um, and, and some of the scenes aren't dubbed in English. But the special, the gore in here is intense. And I feel like the gore in this movie, it, it needs to be there, especially when it, it plays with the media filming it and everything like that. I feel that's like an extension of uh, Diodato's statement on Cannibal Holocaust. But essentially the plot of this movie is um, there's a news crew that um, is trying to get a story on drug dealers um, in America. They end up tying it into drug dealers in you know South America. And they realize that um, this picture they find is one of a missing son of you know the video uh, you know, a, a news producer or whatever like that. So they get sent to go to this jungle and try to figure out where this, this guy is and do a story about you know the drug trade and everything. They stumble across Richard Lynch who is this kind of uh, uh, you know colonel went AWOL and he's trying to steal all the drugs in uh, you know Venezuela and take over the drug trade and everything like that. So it, it's a crazy action movie. It's really violent. There's these moments where the natives um, he has a group of natives that help him too. Richard Lynch are, are raping a lot of people and ripping them apart there's a, a crazy trap in here what John Striner gets trapped in uh, captured into which is intense crazy gory and there's also some real mean-spirited deaths like I said and I just kind of made my jaw drop some of the craziest gore from 85 for sure heads getting whacked off lots of squibs um, oh well a few squibs um, but there's, like I said this has got a tremendous cast for what it is it jumps back between I think New York and um, is it New York? I, I would imagine it is New York and the Jungle. Like also all good cannibal movies. Think Cannibal Ferox, Cannibal Holocaust. They always are jumping back and forth here and there. Even Zombie Holocaust does it. So it's got those tropes that that all these can jungle adventure movies do. Even though it's really not a cannibal movie, it kind of fits into that. But I think it's fast paced and, and it's got lots of cool things going on for it. It's definitely the best uh, jungle adventure movie from '85, um, especially Italian jungle adventure movie. But it does have some competition in Massacre of Dinosaur Valley and Amazonia, which I both. Think are worth watching as well so like i said um this one i think is a little underseen do not watch the youtube version or the amazon prime version because they're the cut versions um so they'll cut to scenes and, and that are usually like gory or anything and they'll have like clothed versions and stuff like that um the nudity is really unpleasant in here to be honest there's this poor girl who's actually dating diodato at the time and she's in it and she gets taken advantage of by gabriel 
Benty and John Striner and stuff like that. He like sells her to him, basically his friend, you know. So it's kind of you know nasty. But like I said, there's some really awesome scene where the natives attack like that uh, drug house and they start picking people off. And the opening scene in this is intense as hell. And they use this great like it's got to be an airplane shot where they go above and they, you're seeing all the chaos. And Michael Berryman lifts some guy up and he throws him in the water. Um, also, bravo to Michael Berryman being a trooper. Um, he was in the Hills of Eyes, so he's in the desert. He has a disease where it's an alopecia. I can't say that word for some reason. Mr. Parker's got brain damage. But, um, yeah, I think it's where you don't have any sweat glands or hair on your body. So he doesn't have sweat glands. So in Hills of Eyes, he, he basically had trouble, you know, with that because it's so damn hot. And this one, too, it's extremely hot in Venezuela and, and moisture. It's crazy. So he was jumping in the water and everything like that and, and there's a lot of people that would not do that so I really like the movie I think it looks fantastic especially uh, besides the inserts this this blu-ray is actually really nice from Ronin Flix it's got a bunch of features like I said two versions got a long interview with Ruggiero Diodato and it seems like an intense shoot it's got an interview with Leonard Mann it's got an interview with um, Willie Ames and, and there's somebody else in here too, John Striner. So it's a loaded Blu-ray, highly recommended. It's got a nice slipcover. Um, really like this one. Probably one of my favorites from 85, if you guys can't tell already. So that's Cut and Run. Savage wilderness. Two reporters stumble into a troubled paradise and wind up running for their lives. We can't just sit here, Mark. We'd be asking for it. Because beneath the sheer beauty lies a world of utter madness. Today's headlines erupt in a timeless thriller. and run. It's the one story you won't see on the 6 o'clock news. Okay, here we go. We got one from 85 called uh, Savage Island. This is also on Amazon Prime and uh, Full Moon released this one. This is a four movie set obviously from Shout Factory. Quality's not particularly great on this. This one also has got to be Italian, but it's it's credited as Ted Nikolai directing it. And I probably think he only directed the opening and the ending stuff with Linda Blair. Uh, but this is a uh, got to be shot in the Philippines, and this is a woman in prison movie kind of deal. I think Sweet Sugar or any of those kind of movies. Okay, all right. This is a sloppy-ass movie that was basically um, patched together with uh, opening and closing starring Linda Blair. So it opens up with Linda Blair kind of walking in this, like, really great, like, fancy hotel, killing somebody, going upstairs and talking to this, you know, this creepy guy about um, buying diamonds. And then she tells him, you know what? 
I know where you got those diamonds. You got their blood diamonds. And I know, and I shut that island down. Um, and I'm going to shut you down. And he's like, oh. And so that flashes back to this story um, where she's not there. And it's all these um, women being transported to this island to work and basically be slaves to dig for diamonds. There's a bunch of creepy people on there on the island, including Luciano Rossi, who's in a bunch of these Italian movies, uh, always as a crazy bad guy. I, I think I've mentioned his name 25 times in this in the past few years, but I can't remember any movies he's in. He's just always there. And it also has um, the guy they call the Italian Peter Laurie, who's in Werewolf and a Girl's Dormitoria. He runs the whole kind of camp. So these people basically are running the camp. Uh, there's a bunch of creeps around there, um, one of which who I think is an escape from hell hole. Um, escape from hellhole and uh, he's one of the guards so they always taking advantage of women there's always naked women there's always these fights of girls stripping nude and everything and torture really sleazy really kind of nasty um i did kind of enjoy it just because it's so audacious kind of like in the term that the movie hellhole's kind of like that too so essentially there's a group of uh people that are gonna come in and rescue them and work with the uh women because the women are all plants like a couple of the women are plants that overtake the camp which was definitely added in later by you know the uh opening and ending of the movie with Linda Blair. So uh, basically Anthony Steffen comes in. He's leading this group of mercenaries um, and you know he's in stuff like uh, what's a Django die you bastard and he's that he kind of has like soulless eyes. He looks dead inside. He's basically leading this group and there's a big revolution and there's a bunch of fighting and shooting and crazy things going on. And what's really weird is um, uh, people get picked off by, of course, uh, crazy things like quicksand and all sorts of things like that. That's how you die in the jungle in movies. You fall in quicksand, you know, a prana gets you, something, the anaconda. That's how you die in these movies, okay? Uh, very rarely do you get killed by the enemy. Sometimes you just fall on a spike or something like that. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so basically what happens is this movie, it started getting good. There was a bunch of crazy action. And then like 25 to 45% of the characters don't have ends and it cuts back to Linda Blair and you, it's just like everything's unsettled like the movie was incomplete. I don't know if this is like two movies patched together and I, I didn't get to see the original version but I don't know what's going on with Savage Island. It kind of falls apart and the opening and ending with Linda Blair are just too sloppy. It just add-ons and tons of exposition like it's just one of those movies that like you hear people talking over things to scenes just to get it through like and then they do this and this and this you're like okay because otherwise this movie would make absolutely no sense and it barely makes sense as it is but if you want to watch it it's on prime um there's a dvd four set and there's a full moon dvd i'm pretty sure they're all the same prints not particularly great um but there's a lot of nudity and a lot of sleaze if that's your thing so yeah savage island women trapped on a prison island forced into slavery depending on sadistic guards for survival with nothing to trade but their very soul. Wild animal needs to be tamed. They were brutalized. Humiliated. And tortured. Until they were willing to risk anything for freedom. Even death. Linda Blair fought her way back from hell, and nothing was going to stand in the way of her revenge. Savage Island.
Okay, we're going to talk about the only North Korean movie I covered for 1985, and that is Pull Zagari. Hopefully I said Pull Zagari right, because it's kind of a word I, I don't know how to say. Um, this is a North Korean kaiju movie. Yeah, really, really kind of crazy to me. Um, I didn't know they made those movies over there in the 80s. I didn't know any other country was making those movies except Japan, really, at the time. So, okay, Paul Zagari. This is a really weird one. This takes place in the time of imperialism in North Korea. And there's these small villages that are struggling with everything as it is. And, of course, these soldiers come in and tell them. There's, there's a group of bandits, too, that kind of, you know, wage war on the soldiers here and there. And a group of soldiers comes in and tells the blacksmith, you're no longer going to make farming equipment for these people. We're going to take your farming equipment. We're going to turn it to weapons for us to hunt the bandits that are possibly coming out of your village. Of course, the old man says, no, I'm not doing that. They throw him in a prison without anything. And um, he's dying. He, he No one's going to help him. His family's trying to help him his uh his, the guy that works for him the son is interested in his daughter so he's basically like his father-in-law and everything like that so uh one day so his daughter throws rice over for him to eat and instead of eating the rice he ends up uh making this little statue uh with the rice and mud called paul zagari which is kind of this myth that the north korean people have uh where a paul zagari will kind of stop war within the world or something like that um so what happens is there's this little cute statue adorable and um one day they, they take it home and she's sitting there and it's in her sewing box and it wakes up one night and it's the cutest thing ever it's tiny it starts eating all the little sewing needles in there and we learn that paul zagari needs metal to survive so he starts to eat metal and he gets bigger into like ghouly form and then eventually child form and he keeps growing and growing and growing until he's the size of you know like a small godzilla or something like that and paul zagari uh is basically being led by the girl whose blood fell on it uh the girl the the blacksmith's daughter so she has control of paul zagari so they lead into battle to fight the imperialist and uh so they're always trying to figure out how to stop paul zagari Will they dig a hole? Will they blow him up? All sorts of things. But even after they kind of successfully, um, you know, fought, um, he doesn't stop. It's kind of a nice little um, morality tale that, uh, you know, he doesn't stop. And it's a really sad kind of touching tale by the end of the movie. Um, that, you know, maybe stick with the enemy, you know, or maybe war's never the right answer, or maybe, you know, you start the beast, you can't stop it. Uh, there's all sorts of things going on here, but Paul Zagari is really cool, uh, character. He's a really interesting character and the movie's really interesting to me because of all that stuff, but he's adorable at first and you love him. And I was really like, no, Paul Zagari when he's going to get hurt and stuff like that. Um, but the ending is really touching and, and kind of sad and it does feel like its own mythology. And I kind of like that. It was very unique and different. Um, I wish the picture quality was better i watched it on youtube but the fight scenes are are big and elaborate and there's like battles and stuff like that so it doesn't seem cheap there's lots of fighting and lots of major important characters die which is kind of sad but would recommend checking this one out i think it's really cool it's paul zagari プルガサリ伝説の大怪獣誰も見ることのできなかった怪獣映画の最高傑作が 35mm 
1万人以上の群衆が繰り広げる脅威のスペクタクル壮大なスケールで展開する破壊のカタルシス今熱い注目の中映画史に残る怪獣映画の金字塔が世界で初めて大スクリーンに登場する全世界が待っていた伝説の怪獣映画ついに解禁フルガサリ伝説の大怪獣 OK I covered the 1984 uh, Godzilla version, Return of Godzilla, and I really just wanted to cover the 1985 Godzilla. So, the other kaiju movie of 1985, Godzilla 1985. And this is the one I remember as a kid, the American version of it with Raymond Burr. Perry Mason, guys, Perry Mason.、Um, also in the original Godzilla American version. So,、um, this one is shorter. This is going to be a brief review because I'm just going to kind of compare the differences a little bit. And it's been a while since I watched Return of Godzilla. So, the Return of the Godzilla is about an hour and 42 minutes, I think, like that. This one is like an hour and 27 minutes. So, it's way quicker. It has extra scenes with Raymond Burr and Americans in there. And I really do like the kind of stuff that Raymond Burr says.、Um, it doesn't have the big、uh, moment where the Japanese kind of has their own, like,、um, Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Where, where they kind of like pat themselves on the back because the Americans, the Russians, are like, you got to nuke him, you got to nuke him. And he's like, I, we, you know, we'll stand when we're not going to use nuclear wars. And he has this big kind of touching speech about, you know, Japan showing some love for itself. And, and what,、uh, it's not necessarily a good thing, but it's also like they're kind of, so whatever, you know how it goes. But、uh, like I said, if you want to watch more how we actually felt about the miniatures and Godzilla himself, go back to the Return of Godzilla review. But、um, I think this one's enjoyable. I like the element. I can't remember if, if Godzilla always feeds off nuclear energy to get stronger. I can't remember. But、uh, they have the Weapon X thing that fights Godzilla. I like that.、Um, I do think this one is more enjoyable for me just because I know all the previous stuff in the longer version. So when I watch like, the Cliff Notes version, this one with added scenes of Raymond Burr, it just makes it a little bit more enjoyable to me. Maybe I'm closer to this one. And I think it's better you know, for nostalgia for me to watch here. But、uh, it, it's so funny at the end.、Uh, Raymond Burr has this great speech at the end. Like, it's basically right on the nose. It's like them, where like, the guy looks at the camera and is like, maybe we shouldn't meddle with scientific things. Maybe we shouldn't mess with radiation. But Raymond Burr's like, Godzilla goes back. And he gives this big speech where it's all touching and everything like that. And it's exactly what it is. Like, Godzilla is a force of nature. He is our, you know, he's a reminder of the, pro- the things that we've caused. And he is not good nor bad. He just is. He, you know, he is a force of nature that we've created. And that's what I like about Godzilla in a lot of ways. And, and somehow you can take this giant green lizard that breathes fire. Or, or not even fire in this one, but Breeze, that kind of laser blast, does all sorts of crazy things and make him sympathetic. That's, that's pretty cool.、Um, and I mean, like, it's like a lot of things. It's, it's your own creation. You know, it's your fault why this is happening to a certain extent.、So、it never loses that kind of element to it. Um, uh, like I said, also, there is the, the thing in here. I, I'm missing out. I'm losing it. I'm losing it. I think I just lost it.、Um, but, you know, I do enjoy the movie. I do like the movie. I would recommend checking it out if you've never seen Godzilla in 1985.、Um, there is some differences for sure. And, oh, I was going to say, it does cross that line with the scientific stuff for me because, like, Godzilla has the DNA of birds. So we're, it also has. 
bad dubbing for the Japanese people. It's like, Godzilla has the DNA of birds, so we're going to use the migratory sounds of birds to attract Godzilla somewhere else. And uh, later, you know, uh, Godzilla versus Belante or whatever that damn plant thing is. It's the sequel to this one. This one in 1985 are the ones I watched all the time as a kid. So, yeah, um, have some nostalgia and some love for it. That's Godzilla in 1985. 30 years ago, he thought it was over. Troops, aircraft, rockets, they were all used before. Now, your favorite fire-breathing monster is back like you've never seen him before. The legend is reborn in the all-new Godzilla 1985, starring Raymond Burr. Godzilla 1985, rated PG. Okay, I actually watched this one um, on uh, Tubi, but this is an old tape. There is a DVD out there, and I did order the Arrow Blu-ray of DEFCON 4. That's right. Um, I always loved this tape, to be honest. But the thing about DEFCON 4 was one that I watched as a kid, too. And I had mixed feelings about it as a kid. Like, as a kid, I wanted everything to have zombies. And I'm like, this better have zombies in it. When we had, like, an idea of cannibals, I was like, we're going to get zombies. This one starts off as an exceptionally scary nuclear war space movie, sci-fi movie, where these astronauts are in space. And they're supposed to basically, they're up there to protect the Earth and, and shoot uh, nuclear warheads if they see anything else going on. There's three astronauts. There's um, uh, two guys and a woman. And... And uh, the lead guy in here is kind of really weird. He's kind of fickle. And at first, you really just can't stand him. He's a nervous Nelly. He's just does a lot of stupid things. And he doesn't seem like the leading type, the strong type. And that's definitely what they were going for. And the other guy um, up there is kind of, uh, you know, more intake charge, kind of more masculine kind of guy. Um, and the female is actually the my favorite character in the whole movie, the female astronaut up here. I think that she is the you know, strongest and she definitely tries to fight the best. But what happens here is uh, the nuclear war breaks out and um, something goes wrong with their ship. They end up having to crash on Earth after basically a bunch of nuclear fallout has happened. And um, uh, there's, there's some tragedy right away. But uh, the main astronaut guy kind of runs into this guy who I can't think of the actor's name, but he's in a bunch of stuff. He's the guy in Dances with Wolves who says, I just shit myself and there's nothing you can do about it. He basically is this kind of crazy survivalist that takes him back and... Um, he he has a woman locked in the cellar and everything like that. He just he's obsessed with women and he tells him, you know, he's he tries to barter with him and says, There's a bunch of food back at my ship, yada yada yada. But um before they can even get to the ship, they're intercepted by a, a group of uh, you know, kind of I guess they would be edgelords. I don't know what they are. But uh they're they're a bunch of douchey guys. Um that ended up taking them in captive, including the the woman who ends up being the leader of those edgelords' girlfriend. From so it gets kind of convoluted in that aspect where they're like, "Well, we shot your ship down with like technology or whatever," and that's kind of nonsensical. Like in the beginning, it starts off really good and really scary and really effective, but after a while, it starts to get your typical kind of Mad Max ripoff. I, I, the longer it goes on, the less I like it. But I liked it so much at the beginning. By the end of it, I still kind of enjoyed the movie. Um, so it gets kind of crazy. It turns into kind of an action set piece. And the lead character has to come around. And he ends up being a decent enough character that I liked him. Um, and uh, so, so the female astronaut still the strongest character in the movie. And I really like, you know, what she does and w what her end is. I, I was like, at least she tried something. You know, they didn't kill the character off completely ridiculous. But uh, there's a lot of douchey characters in here. But I also really like the crazy survivalist. I think he does an exceptional job. He's really creepy. And um, I, all overall, it's a decent post-apocalyptic 
movie. Not too bad at all. Um, the one thing I want to mention here, which I think is kind of crazy, um, is how busy New World Pictures was at this time. Godzilla 1985 was a New World Pictures. Defcon 4 was a New World Pictures. So basically, I want to name all the movies that were released from New World Pictures in 1985, Roger Corman's company. So we have Tough Turf. These aren't all horror movies, but we have Tough Turf, Avenging Angel, The Annihilators, The Highest Honor, Lost in the Dust, that's the Paul Bartel movie, Certain Fury, which is a really cool um, movie, Defcon 4, Fraternity Vacation, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Out of Control, which is an alright movie itself, The Stuff, which is a classic I've covered, Godzilla 1985, The Boys Next Door, um, which is an excellent movie I covered for 1985, um, Transylvania 65000, which is a kind of a fun movie, Making Contact, and... Um, House, which came out in 86, but technically we counted as 85. So that is like 16 movies, a lot of which are the horror movies of this year that I've covered or horror-adjacent movies. So that's really crazy how busy New World Pictures was in 1985. And I think there was a new regime change over from 84 to 85 or something like that. So um, pretty crazy. Very, very busy. Maybe Corbin wasn't involved at that point, but we got some cool movies out of it, especially Boys Next Door, The Stuff, House, uh, Godzilla 85. So we got some good stuff out of, you know, New World in 85. So and it, it kind of makes me bring up points. It's like oh, we had Empire at the time and New World cranking stuff out. Um, I know we have like SpectraVision and A24, but where are our cheapy ones like Canon and Empire and New World? Like a lot of those movies are some of my favorite movies to watch growing up. So I feel bad that, um, you know, I guess the audience doesn't have those movies. They do have a lot of cheaper stuff around, but and not quite the same flair. The Nemesis, a nuclear weapon space platform designed to protect America. Roger, on my way. It is 22,000 miles over the Earth when World War III explodes. Can't walk. I don't believe it. FCON 2. I have solid object alert. All right, look, it's happening, right? Yes, Jordan, it's happening. All right, then launch, Walker. You're all getting blown away. We'll launch when we get War One. Walker, fight! The Star Wars technology of the future becomes the reality of today. Defense Condition 4. For three astronauts, the mission that began in space will have its ultimate destiny on Earth. What they will find is unthinkable. Hey! They got hold of my hand! What finds them is far worse. DEFCON 4. The final defense. Okay, another one from 1985 is a TV movie, and it is the 1985 Bad Seed remake. And um, I gave this a lower review than I should have, because when I watched it, I was like, that was very enjoyable, much better than I expected. The original is, is a bona fide classic to me, and um, I always thought Patty, um, what is it, Patty Duke in here? What's her name? Uh, Patty McCormick. There we go. Patty Duke, somebody else. Jeez. Jeez Louise. Patty McCormick, um, who kind of repraised her role in Ma, uh, Mommy later on, but she was tremendous in that as the little girl actress, and I 
I remember um, the bad seed having quite an impact on me when I watched it. So the remake, I was like, okay, it's a TV remake. How much better can it be? Um, so I start watching it. And I'm like, this is pretty close. And, and I guess it follows the book or the play a little bit closer. I think there's a player book. And the ending of the TV one is closer to what actually happened. And it's actually kind of a darker ending, if you ask me, in a lot of ways. Um, so, yeah. Okay, the bad seed. Uh, what we have here is uh, a little girl who's just bad, um, and it has this huge argument over nature versus nurture and everything like that. So uh, we have a single mother who recently lost her husband. And she's moved to this kind of uh, apartment. Everybody loves her daughter. They love her. They adore her. You know, she has like um, her grand, her dad loves her. Um, her si her um, husband's sister loves her. The neighbors love her. Everybody loves her, except kind of the uh, the dim-witted kind of handyman that that works at the apartment complex, played by David Carradine in a great role. Um, Leroy is his name. So everybody loves her, but you can tell that the the mother knows something is off. And there's something deep embedded in her subconscious and, and, and deep down in there. So uh, basically what we have is through some series and everything, you realize that she is evil. She's no good, and she starts to kind of uh, set these situations up where people will die. And there's a great reveal in here where you find out she is evil about some kid who uh, tragically drowned and lost his kind of uh, best penmanship badge or something like that. And that reveal has always been great and very powerful. The acting is tremendous. Um, the one thing that I do miss of the original, is it Shelley Winters in the original, or is it somebody else who, I, it might not, don't, don't quote me, it's been a while since I watched that, but the performance of the mother who lost her son is one of the strongest performances I remember watching in the original Bad Seed. I remember like tearing up. Here it's also a very strong performance, but I feel like it is very much, very much the same thing. I think David Carradine playing kind of the drunk Leroy is actually really good and really creepy, and the back and forth that he has with the little girl is good. The little girl's really strong in here. It's actually well acted. It's much better than a TV movie nowadays would be, and I do not think it's that horrible. I know a lot of people are like, this is bad. I mean, it is a remake. It is a pretty much scene-for-scene scene remake of the original. Not as good in a lot of aspects, but it's not that horrible. And the ending keeps more intact the original story. So you got to give it some props for that. I did enjoy it. I think it's very dark. I think it's very dark for a TV movie. I think the story is twisted. And I like that they kind of have the one guy who's kind of involved, knows a lot about true crime, and he starts to talk about it quite a bit and um the way that uh, the mother kind of digs picks at him and acts like she's going to write a book but she's really kind of investigating her own daughter so i do like that but he did make a mistake he called charles starkweather a serial killer he's more of a mass murderer i think or a spree killer so um whatever though whatever but uh maybe i'm wrong uh so so, so that's kind of interesting in point so i do like true crime at the same time and i do like that psychological character study of what makes somebody you know be a monster and that's in here for sure. And uh, there is a reveal that's really good. So I really like this movie. Um, I don't love it. It's not as good as the original, of course. And maybe some people would say, why well, like this? It's just like the Cycle remake, which I don't remember liking at all. But still, uh, I do think that this one has a certain charm to it. Maybe because it's kind of low-key and not so, you know, in your face. But I, I like it. It's the Bad Seed 1985 TV remake. Why, if 
I wanted a statue out here, I'd have gotten one of those cast-iron jockeys. Yeah? You've been standing in that same spot since I left for the gym. Look what you've done here. You've broken off some of my chrysanthemums. Oh, no, Miss Breedlove, ma'am. That wasn't me. That was that ugly little black and white dog down the street. I shoot him away real good, though. Post office, back for lunch. Naturally. <laughs> Develop any new muscles at the gym today? You'll be the first to know. Certainly hope so. Sweetheart, I just dropped by to say goodbye. Grandpa's going off on another lecture tour. Can I come with you? No, no, you'd be bored to tears. No, I wouldn't. Yes, you would. Even your grandmother, rest her soul, used to say God made me a writer and not a talker. Do they pay you when you lecture people? Oh, of course they do. Your grandfather's one of the best political analysts in the country. Yes, trying to make sense out of total lunacy. Anyway, the important thing is, what do you want me to bring you back as a present? Oh, Daddy, you don't have to do that every I time. I always bring her a present, don't I, sweetheart? <laughs> well, look who's little Miss Perky all of a sudden. Hmm? What do you mean? Well, she's been moping around here since yesterday. She wanted to win the penmanship medal at school, but she didn't. Oh. It's the only medal they give out. Okay. We got another SOV for you. This is an anthology SOV movie. And uh, yeah, this is directed by the legendary independent director Tim Ritter. This is Twisted Illusions. I have three versions of this, actually. Here is the um, remastered version made in 2004. That's the longer version of Twisted Illusions. Here is the Twisted Illusions kind of DVD uh, tape set, which has one and two mixed which two came out in 2004, I think. And then here is the original VHS tape of Twisted Illusion still sealed. Uh, yeah, that's crazy, right? One of the original tapes. So uh, here we go. Twisted Illusions has, I think, seven or nine stories in there. Let's see if I can remember all of them. You got to remember, this is a 70-minute movie with a bunch of short stories in here. It's SOV. If you guys know Tim Raider, he actually started his career uh, making a short movie uh, called Day of the Reaper Super 8, I think it was, with no sound or anything. Uh, so yeah, and then he made this one was the second one. There was a short in here called Truth or Dare, which he get, got to make into a feature-length movie, which kind of had some notoriety. He went on to do Killing Spree, and after that, he made a bunch more SOV movies. Killing Spree and Truth or Dare were actually shot on film, as well as Dave Reaper. This one is an SOV movie. Okay, like I said, there's like seven or nine stories. Let's see if I can remember all of them in here. Um, the most, the major story in here is Truth or Dare. 
that stars Joel D. Weinkoop, kind of a legendary actor. I love Joel D. Weinkoop, legendary B-movie actor for sure. And he's tremendous in this one. This is basically a simple story about a man who divorces his wife and he loses his mind. He starts to crack mentally. He picks up a hitchhiker and they start to play truth or dare in the woods when they're camping and it gets more violent and more explicit and you realize that there's definitely a psychological break in here. This is the strongest short of the bunch um, and there's music cues that I really love and almost turn haunting and uh, I, I like this. I think it's a very good short. There's some other kind of comedy shorts in here. The one where uh, Joel D and Tim Ritter are playing these characters where they're going to meet a famous director. They sneak into his hospital room to talk to him, our producer, and uh, the gag is he's dead. And it's very funny because Joel D says off the cuff, you can tell he's like, Mr. Maxwell, Mr. Maxwell. They're both very funny and it, it, it's very comical. There's one about Mind the Stairs. The version I watched had two versions of it, but this is basically kind of making a joke about why try to be healthy? Why try to worry about it too much? You're going to die anyways. There's one about a cheapskate who steals free cable. Uh, very funny Capricorn network where he is. This, it's just a joke basically uh, about stealing cable and he's just super cheap and very annoying. Um, there's one about a uh, lost VHS tape that somebody finds that brings a killer into the world. One about a mistreated wife who goes completely mad and uses uh, items that she's supposed to clean with as a violent uh, weapon. Um, I, I think I've hit most of them. Like I said, there's so many of them in here. There's a bad chemical one, of course. So it's basically an anthology. It's pretty fast paced. There's only, like I said, it goes pretty quick in here. There's seven. So, uh, yeah, if this sounds like it's up your alley, it does have a certain charm. It is dirt cheap. There's a minimal coverage, um, but Joel D shines as he always does. And if you want to see some of Tim Ritter's earlier stuff, then I would recommend checking this out. Tim Ritter was like 17, 18 years old when he made this. So what's that tell you? Um, yeah, he, it's kind of like a do it yourself. Um, and this is also a crazy time. We have 85 here. Like I said, we have so many people making movies. Polonia brothers made one too. Church of the damned, um, Tim Ritter in 85. We have, have SOV movies like Blood Cult, the big ones in 85, um, The Ripper. Then we have like big dogs like Romero. Gordon's just starting. Romero's still making movies. Craven's making a TV movie. Hooper's still making a big one. We have so much stuff going on in 85. It's one of the pinnacle years of horror movies and stuff like that. And definitely um, in a weird spot too in the mid-80s with the VHS boom and all sorts of stuff going on. So a uh, very interesting time for horror movies. And Tim Ritter fits right to that with an SOV anthology, Twisted Illusions, uh, which like I said, had a sequel later on. And, uh, uh, you know, had a bunch of familiar faces. Well, a couple of familiar faces and Joel D. Weinkoop and Tim Ritter in there actually starring themselves. So, yeah. That's it's just a long, dumb story. Hey, I got an idea. Yeah? Yeah, let's play Truth or Dare. Huh? Truth or Dare. Truth or Dare.
Okay, this next one here is a dirt cheap movie. Um, this one's from I Love Pictures. This is Victims. And I couldn't watch my Blu-ray. It would not work. So I actually had to find it streaming somewhere on YouTube. <laughs> actually, it looked like crap. The Blu-ray was defective. Um, so check your Blu-rays. Make sure yours isn't. Um, Victims is a pretty short uh, slasher movie. It opens up with a guy going completely bonkers uh, in kind of a, a you know Norman Bates kind of um, mom outfit, running around, stabbing women. Uh, a couple of them are new, just hacking and slashing. He gets arrested and put into a mental facility. And then I think he's released. Is that what I'm supposed to understand? I don't know. Um, him and this other guy... I think it's him. I don't even know what's going on. But him and this other guy rob a bank. They're on a run from it. And meanwhile, we have these four girls who are going to go on vacation in the desert and camp. And um, at first, the guy's like, you can't do that. That's dangerous for women. And it's just like, I don't know why anybody would want to go in the desert unless you're like a survivalist in camp. It just does not seem fun regardless. But honestly, uh, so they go in the desert. Of course, they run into the creeps. And these creeps are legitimately the most generic rapist of all time. Like, you know, when you make a joke about like scummy rapist idiots and, and stuff and you're like, she was asking for it. You see what she was wearing? They actually say this. Like, I was like, are we doing this? Really? Like, these guys are this stereotype typical where they're like you were asking for it walking around in your bikinis and this is one of these movies where almost every guy's a pervert is ridiculous um the girls fight back though at least you know they're semi-tough and they're kind of uh you know fairly established um it's a lot of unpleasant nudity where they're like strip nude strip nude and the girls have to take off their clothes and it's like a burning desert and they all have like these tan lines and everything because it's so damn hot and they're probably all sunburned but they're just like holding themselves crying and the guys are standing over there drooling so it's pretty unpleasant movie um and of course the girls get revenge and fight back that's pretty much the basis of it there's this weird kind of folky song that's in there that i kind of like that feels like a carryover from the 70s that's kind of weird like that a lot of these movies do feel like carryover from the 70s horror movies um exploitation kind of thing and this one definitely feels like that um uh, the movie would be a little bit better if they didn't have the very lame ending with the cops. Um, there's an ending with the cops and it's only like minimal coverage again of a shot of them. And the cops like, you guys were doing all this. It's just like, oh, we're having the dumb cop blame them because they're pretty girls and they're young. Oh, we got the generation divide. I, I, that was just, that does not date it very well. I wish that I could watch the Blu-ray. I, I'm getting a replacement soon, so... Hopefully the quality is better. I, I think this one was shot on 16 millimeter so, and blown up to 35. I don't know, but it didn't look very good in the print I saw was a VHS. So I don't know. Sometimes Slasher Video can't find elements for the release, like shot uh, videotape masters on uh, Blu-ray. So I have no idea what the victim's Blu-ray looked like because mine wouldn't even turn on. It was that bad. It had like an air bubble right in the middle of the disc right when I opened it. So uh, yeah, the movie itself... It's not really that great. Uh, you could pass on this one probably, but it is very sleazy. And the bad guys are really gross. And there's this really weird flashback in Vietnam too. So I don't know. Um, there's not. There's some gore and some blood, but super sleazy, fairly gross. Do like that the women, it's one of those things where the women kick ass in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, they're super exploited. But that's an exploitation movie. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. That's victims. We told you what happened. It's a leave they and tell her side of the story. The other does. All I got is your word for it, Daddy Rachel. Physical examination will prove that we're telling you the truth. All that will prove that you had intercourse with him. Right now, I got a man out of his mind with a bullet hole through his leg. For all I know, he may have been the victim. You see? Oh, we're telling the truth. Look, I'll lay it out for you. It'll go a heck of a lot easier for all of you. If you tell me what you did with the money. What money? The money from the gas station holdup. We don't know anything about a holdup. 
What are you trying to say to us? Lady, <laughs> a man with shotgun, Olga, not as damn serious enough. But if that attendant should die, you're going to find yourself in more trouble than you ever dreamed of. So help me God, we don't know anything about any gas station. Hold up! Oh, God. All right. Have it your own way. I just don't understand you kids nowadays. Seems you're always getting yourself into trouble. Okay, I'm going to be pretty quick with this one. This one is 1985's Bloodstream. This is a British horror movie. I don't know. This is by a guy named Michael Murphy. Um, he did a bunch of other stuff later on. Some of the tapes I actually I have and um, uh, Invitation to Hell I have on DVD and stuff like that. So I had never seen his movies. He's been making movies for a very long time, apparently. And this one is super low budget called Bloodstream. Um, this is bad. This might be the worst of the year. Um, so essentially what we have here is this independent directory makes this movie called Bloodstream. The producer is an asshole. He screws him over the tape, says, your movie's horrible, we're getting rid of it, you'll never work in this town again, yada, yada, etc., etc. He's heartbroken, the filmmaker's heartbroken, um, but the producer ends up, he's like, we're going to sell this to a bunch of people anyways, I just wanted the money. A secretary overhears, doesn't like it, goes to the director, tells him that, the director decides to get revenge. So the director, you know, instead of, you know, suing him or just killing them, flat out he decides to go all last house on dead end street with it and make a movie out of it to get revenge so it's kind of like a semi remake of last house on dead end street or something like that but just not nearly as good so essentially what he does is he gets a video camera he puts a skull mask on and he starts filming all their murders for no apparent reason the secretary helps him plan all these out but what's really weird about the movie is um they introduce characters like uh, like they have their their pictures like they're you know they're like acting for for portfolio pictures and one's an actor and an actress a couple actors and i'm like i don't remember these characters in the movie at all we're halfway through the movie and all of a sudden these are on his hit list it's like oh i didn't like these actors yeah i'm gonna kill them so i'm like whatever so he picks a bunch of them off um and we and it's basically a movie of him picking off these people and at the very end you know there's some turmoil within him and the secretary but what makes this movie even more annoying is the fact that um half of the runtime is this director watching other movies um that this company produced and at first i was like is this all bloodstream for like the first half of it and then i was like oh these are other movies the producer produced or put out that are just kind of bad movies like there's a zombie one they go they run the gauntlet uh, um you know exorcism movies zombie movies slasher movies biker post-apocalyptic movies they're all there and i'm thinking I'd rather be watching those than this movie. And I'm wondering, and they look bad too. They look cheap and fun though, at least. I'm wondering if those are movies this director made previously. I don't know. Some of them kind of incorporate the actual movie itself and the shorts. So I don't know if they were made distinctly for this or shorts or whatever. But uh, yeah, half the movie is a guy watching movies. So, and they don't really seem like they tie in anything. It just seems like padding the runtime. Not very good. Not very well acted. Just kind of very boring and stupid. And um, although it's not the most boring movie of '85, it's definitely the one of the one of the takes for worst. I know this director did a bunch more movies, and I'm willing to try out his other stuff. Like I said, I have a few of them here. I bought them. So Bloodstream is on YouTube. I don't know if it's considered a. It's on a bonus feature on any of those other ones. It may be. I don't know that I have already, but, uh, it is dirt cheap and I, it looks like it has film grain on it, but it's so cheap. I don't know what it was shot on. I have no idea, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just not good.
Okay, guys, the next one is from 85, of course, and it is Bits and Pieces, another cheapie. This one is kind of a um, psycho, sto- psycho maniac, killer of dolls story, where you have this guy who has obviously mo- obvious mommy issues, and he talks to this mannequin with his red hair, and uh, the mannequin, I guess, tells him to kill women. So he goes out and he picks up women uh, that are usually frequenting a male strip joint, uh, you know, and he picks them up in the parking lot, he hacks and slashes them, throws their bits and pieces in trash bins. Um, a cop catches on and uh, one of the girls he's after that was a friend of one of the victims so he's kind of tracing them and the cop starts to date that girl so that's all intertwined Um, okay Uh, there's not much more to this story to be honest like I said it's definitely the psycho story so there'll be these weird elements of him talking to like the the mannequin with the wig on it and also like I said feels like a maniac and killer of dolls which also have that weird kind of main uh, mannequin kind of you know mommy issue thing going on it's definitely cashing on those if I remember there's not particularly that much gore but when they actually show like the head the bits and pieces in the dumpster they're kind of nasty um, and, and, and like for at times like the cop and the woman have like these long you know relationship moments and everything like that it ends on a darker note than i expected to be honest um but i don't have much to say about this one it's very bland he has flashbacks with his mother um where you see what the kind of stuff she did to him and it's very carbon copy like oh we made her made him dress up like a woman we made him do all that kind of thing and the killer to me reminds me of kind of like a cheap crispin glubber if that makes any sense. He reminds me of a cheap Crispin Glover. Um, and he ties up the women, kind of strips them nude, and cuts them to pieces. That's what you get. Very, very run-of-the-mill uh, psycho slasher ripoff. Um, 
The picture quality is not particularly great again. Couldn't really find anywhere to watch it except YouTube. No, Nowhere to buy it or anything like that. But uh, I, like I said, I wish I had more to say about this, but I'm really drawing a blank when it comes to this one. Uh, like you said, you watch so many movies and, and some of them bleed together. I just remember this being relatively cheap and... Uh, you know, there's there's a decent moment here. I will give it some props over Victims, where, you know, at the end of Victims, they have a really shitty cop that's just so annoying. The cop in this one, he starts off as an asshole at one point, but he's like, I'm sorry, man. Just give me a break. And you're like, you know what? Thank you for being a realistic cop for once, you know, like, or, or a realistic character, not just like, ah, oh. at least having some sort of dimension to him, not just a one-dimensional character. They kind of add that element to it. So, so I kind of enjoy that bit. And like a lot of it is police procedural where a homeless woman sees the body and they go to her and she's like, I couldn't see everything. And they find vanity plates, track the plates. Oh no, it didn't lead to this. And it kind of plays kind of like a police procedural, like the movie later uh, down this video called Night Killer, but not nearly as effective, but bits and pieces I'll probably skip this one too mommy mommy Okay, this next one is a Hong Kong movie from 1985, and this is Night Color. Yeah, this is a pretty interesting movie, to be honest. Uh, yeah. It starts off, like, and I've seen reviews, too, and I was like, that, that's dead-on correct. It starts off like a Dario Argento kind of crazy movie. It's giallo, it's thriller, it's police procedural, and it's a Christmas movie. Yeah, it's a Christmas movie. This one's kind of a gem, kind of a gem. Uh, so, basically, it opens up with this really crazy murder where a child witnesses it. That's very Dario Argento. Think of all the movies that do that. Doesn't Sleepless do that? Um, doesn't, uh, geez, uh, Phantom or um, Sleepless does it for sure. And, um, uh, geez, I want to say um, he didn't direct it, but Wax Mask, he was involved with it, has that moment too. So, so many of those movies like that have that witness of this elaborate kind of crazy murder of a woman fighting for her life and a child watching it and like these weird kind of moments. She's holding her doll and everything. So that really felt like that. And then the killer runs away. We don't see who it is. Some of the people see it. We have these Christmas killers going around at that time. That whole scene is great and effective. And a man with one eye witnesses part of it. So it has all these things going on. And I'll add that that man with one eye, along with some of the other characters like the coroner, are like these goofy kind of characters that you would see in a Dario Argento flick, like kind of the bird with the crystal plumage with the guy who eats the cats, or like the really flamboyant uh, kind of detective in Is It Four Flies on Grey Velvet. So again, we have these kind of over-the-top kind of weird characters that are sprinkled in this relatively serious kind of messed up jello. So um, these two cops are put on the case. Um, one is kind of a... a 
you know, uh, doesn't follow it by the books, kind of a dirty, hairy kind of type. Uh, his introduction is him beating up a bunch of punks in like a soup shop. They're giving these a couple a hard time. He whoops the crap out of them. Really effective scene. He uses a baton, which is really awesome. Um, so, and the other cop is kind of a married man, has a family life, never had time for a kid. So they basically pawn this kid who's now gone. Um, he, the, the kid, the, the little girl's gone mute. She's adorable too. You feel bad for her the entire movie. She's just always crying. She's gone mute. So they pawn the kid off on him and say can you take care of this she has no family members in the area and we would like her to be around you for protection and possible witness so he's taking care of this girl and with his wife and it's christmas time and everything and the other cop and him are trying to figure out this case so uh again we have that element you know like never had time for a kid kind of get an adopted kid so they start to dig deeper and they start to look into she was a model so they start to look into the modeling business which reminds me of another movie that came out this year from italy called model uh model killer is it or something like that uh um only what geez i can't think uh nothing underneath which is another italian giallo it fits a lot with that one with the model uh fashion industry which is another big giallo trope think strip nude for your killer so again then we start to they start to dig into this model fashion agency and somebody gets killed from that in a very elaborate way and they kind of tie it down and at one point one of the characters is actually kidnapped by the killer and you learn the killer's psychology is all messed up feels very much again like a giallo and they have another person with them who's nuts so they start to torture this person there's some twists and turns and eventually it turns into some action moments and some really cool things Um, there's some funny moments like I said and there's a real cruel joke at the end of this movie that almost the whole movie I thought it was ending that way I was like you can't do this you can't pull a red to kill which is another hong kong movie which just broke my heart i was like how could you be that mean god damn it but they actually pull a trick on you which actually makes it a little cheesy um but at the end i, I still enjoyed the movie it didn't lose me it did lose a little bit of uh, cred though but uh i really like this one i thought it has a great look to it too they all look kind of like this from the uh, 85 asian movies in general look have that certain look to them uh, i would feel like that blue tint like rainy kind of blade runner almost to me they always kind of have that look um i, I enjoyed the hell out of this movie actually i thought it was really cool and um i enjoyed all the characters and the bickering and the bad guys were scary and they had some cool psychological aspects about them the murders were cool and it was rare that i seen a hong kong giallo christmas movie so a cool one from 85 that i never would have watched if i wouldn't have done this dive in 85 but uh, i really wish some of these hong kong movies would get releases but uh i wouldn't hold my breath on that unfortunately i know that arrow is putting some of them out now earth has untold story coming out but there's so many cool hong kong movies even if they not even the extreme ones like this one isn't really that extreme but night killer i like it i think it's cool and there's just tons of these action and exploitation and thriller movies that that need a release
Okay, we have another one from 85. I've covered this one years back, and this is the Japanese movie Gakidama. This is a little creature movie. This is a crazy movie. It only runs at 55 minutes, Japanese movie. And like I said, the previous movie has a similar look to that, like that blue kind of tint. What we have here is this reporter who wants to take a picture of a ghost. He hears in this mountainous area that ghosts often appear. So him and his photographer go up there. They see a strange man on the subway. They're like, I wonder who that guy is. He has a weird face mask on. They end up going to the woods, and they see these beautiful, um, I guess they're, what are they call those uh, wisp uh, you know they're in cemetery man too like those floating glowing things and uh, one of the wisp lands on the journalist is uh, shoulder turns into a little kind of like caterpillar uh, thing kind of reminds me of something like a blue monkey crawls in his ear and he gets a uh, voracious appetite think slither and he can't stop eating and eating and his wife's like geez louise and also kind of funny that his wife mentions in this movie i wish you know we had a kid and that kind of ties into the last movie night killer where she was like we want you know wanted a kid and everything everything like that. And this is very shoehorned, not shoehorned in, but very obvious, you know, shot, you know, kind of foreshadowing what's going to happen in Gakidama. So basically what happens is he eats and eats and eats and he, at night, he, he falls asleep and he's got a big old belly. He pukes up this thing, this little ghoul. I think it's a Gakidama is hungry ghoul or little ghoul. So it's this crazy little gremlin ghoul. And, uh, he runs off, uh, the, that guy with the weird mask shows up and kidnaps him. And uh, runs off into the, the loses the ghoul in the woods. So basically, what happens is um, the journalist is still uh, he, he's kind of lost his mind a little bit. I mean, the the yeah, the journalist and the guy with the face mask uh, comes to him and has a gakidama, and he says, "I know what you're feeling. You want to eat it, right?" I had the same desire and he shows and he has these big scars in his mouth from puking the thing up. And he says, after you have the Gakidama in your body, you must eat it. So he becomes obsessed. They eat this Gakidama together and he learns that his friend, the photographer went back to the mountains by himself and he also has got the Gakidama in him. So he starts to kind of spy on him and he's going to get the Gakidama for himself and eat it. And meanwhile, the Gakidama that escaped in the woods attacks the wife by herself in their giant house with this elaborate fish tank and basically shenanigans ensue kind of like gremlins like shenanigans where you know she's fighting this gakidama and that's pretty much the entire movie here um it does have a weird mythology and crazy mythology and stuff that you would never hear about about you know people being kind of obsessed with the after the something like that happens to them it's entertaining it's really weird i love the little creature he's insane and the fights with the creature and the woman are great um uh, the fish tank scene is awesome the house looks really good too but the creature makes the movie and he's really tremendous and it's a weird bizarre movie that I would recommend checking out. I liked it. Um, it's short, and there's not much to say about it besides what I already did. Just kind of divulged the plot, and I, I do like how it looks. It does have you know some point of view creature stuff. It has everything you could kind of want in this kind of movie. It's really weird, a Japanese movie with weird kind of mysticism and mythology that I enjoy. Gakidama. <laughs>
Okay, another one I rewatched for 85. I could not rewatch it. It is Attack of the Beast Creatures. This is a bootleg. I'm going to apologize. I did not have the VHS, although I wish I did because I'm sure it's worth money. Okay, this movie opens up. It's like 1920, somewhere in the North Atlantic, um, May 1920. And a group of like eight or nine people um, wash ashore. Their ship just crashed. We have an injury. Um, there's an asshole guy bickering like, I hate you. Just leave that guy. He's such an annoying asshole. And these people are stranded on the boat. Some of them seem like they're rather high class. Uh, the stranded on this island. Um, it's rocky at first, and they, they don't really know what to do. They leave the injured man and say, we'll come back for him. We're going to go into the island and see what's going on. And this is kind of when the crazy things start to ensue. Um, it's also called Hell Island, I believe, and that, that fits the title as well. But, um, yeah, what happens is they kind of have the feeling that something's watching them. And, and within the first, like, 20 minutes, there's a lot of character development. You kind of understand who these characters are. And throughout the entire movie, they develop the characters. You know, you kind of know who all these people are. Uh, I ended up really liking the character Phil. Uh, Phil is, like, the heavy guy. He kind of always is around. Every time something happens, they're like, Phil, take care of the women. And he kind of takes care of the women. And he hates the rich guy who's constantly complaining. He's like, I'm going to, I love the, I love Phil. And I also really love the rich old woman who's always very positive around everybody. She's like, oh, we'll be great. We'll do fine. Those two, I just had like a connection to that I really liked. So basically it turns into a survival kind of jungle movie, which I absolutely love. Um, this jungle is not right. You know, it doesn't feel like it. They said that this really feels like it's in the Pacific, even though they're in the Atlantic. It, it's it's way tro more tropical than it should be. So they're struggling to survive and find food. And um, there's a really crazy moment with the water that I don't want to spoil, but I love that the there's something with the water that's really cool. And when that scene happened, I was always, my jaw always drops when I watch it. I love the music too. It's just really weird and creepy and offbeat. I dig the hell out of the music. But um, what happens is they are eventually attacked by these little tiki men. And they're just these little things that are screaming and yelling and the music comes on and they just constantly attack them and bite at them and pick them off one at a time. And when the people actually die, for the most part, a lot of them are established characters. And a lot of the dialogue is kind of cheesy and funny and the acting's not amazing. And none of these people really did anything else. The director was Mike Stanley and it's not the other Mike Stanley that did Dead, Next, that Dead is Dead. which you know. So this is pretty much, I think, all these people ever did. What strikes me is weird as the plot is so goofy and so weird that these little tiki men are ripping them apart and the whole cast is like middle-aged so i'm like how did you convince all these middle-aged people to be in such a wild and weird movie to be honest and and i like the movie because it's ridiculous but it, it feels earnest like i don't see the people like isn't this stupid they're playing it straight you can't make a ridiculous movie and laugh at yourself and say I love wasting my time and your time. These people are, I feel like they're playing in earnest and it's already ridiculous. It's going to come across ridiculous. You might as well try your best. And I feel like they did. I know, I know it's really silly and stupid to a lot of people, but to me, I enjoy the hell out of it. I like little creatures. Um, the creatures make me laugh. They, they, they're they terrifying and they make me laugh. And this whole movie has this weird sense of nightmare logic and, and insanity that I don't even know how to, how to put it. It's just a weird ass movie and it's just crazy and bat shit. And I like the, I like it a lot okay rewatch and i liked it even more i wish this would get a blu-ray release i probably repeated myself a lot what i said last time but that's attack of the beast creatures a lot of fun a lot of weirdness a lot of nightmare logic but just uh you know and the characters of course they get picked off thing like by things like you know uh falling on spikes but hey why not
taking any more chances. Every time we stop, somebody gets killed, injured, we're gonna leave. Hammer time. For all who are willing to pay the price, we invite you to go through the mirror of life. guys what's up it is week 49 of hammer time quietly yes because obviously i'll throw a hissy fit uh and we're here to do captain chronos the vampire hunter is it captain chronos vampire hunter i think it is or killer um, it's it's hunter okay it's gotta be hunter yeah um like i said this is week 49 so we only got three more movies after this and then we start a new season um yeah so this is pretty late in the hammer game 73 i think or is it 74 actually I'm not 100%, because sometimes the dates are a little messed up on these with the books and everything. So, okay, the lead in here, I, I, I didn't really see him in anything else. His name's like Horse Jam. I can't think of his name 100%, in fact. The only real recognizable person for me that I would know right off the cuff by like seeing them in other movies is Caroline Monroe, who was mm-hmm. in Maniac and a, a slew of other things, the Fives movies. So, yeah. It has... um. The one guy from the Peter Pan story. Oh, yeah, yeah. The guy from Fear of the Night and uh, Demons of the Mind. He also mm-hmm. is in Captain Chronos, and he plays pretty much a similar character. He was like a man-child, aristocrat kind of deal. That's pretty much what he plays. He's pretty good at it. Right. So, uh, all right, the plot of this one is pretty cool. We have uh, Vampire Hunter and Captain Chronos, and he seems to come from some sort of almost like um, royal blood or rich blood, uh, arist- uh, aristocratic too, I would say. Right. So him and his hunchback back helper kind of travel the countryside and show up where they're needed to fight uh vampires and this one there's different types of vampires there's life force vampires um that drain your life force and youth and there's a, a you assume that there's other monsters and creatures in this big old world so there's a nice mythos so essentially captain chronos is called by his doctor friend after he suspects that there's some vampires he shows up with his hunchback helper and right away you know he runs into some goons and we know something's up and this you know the vampire is around yeah um, I really like this one. I think it's really well made. I do think that um, at one point I got super tired and I can't understand why. There are some like really long shots in this. Usually they're beautiful though. I mean, they're all very beautiful. They're like the scenes in this movie. Like there aren't any like dialogue, like talking scenes. Everything's very like like all the dialogue's very quick. Yeah. Or or the act. It's a lot of action. Well, 
Um, but there aren't any, like, they don't, like, characters don't sit and talk to each other like they do in the past films we've been watching. There's no monologues or soliloquies or, or nothing to that. <laughs> there is exposition, but a lot of it's visual exposition yes. and storytelling, which is really great, to be honest. That's what you're kind of supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Like, in the openings, we have uh, some young girls being attacked by the, like, kind of a uh, cloaked vampire. It's really kind of awesome that he's in the, mm-hmm. the the person's in the cloak. You don't really know who it is, but you suspect uh, a couple people. They're in, like, this cloaked, and, um, and, like, there's a part where the girl walks by, like, the flowers, and then, like, he walks by, and you're like, oh, it's just, it's kind of, like, suggesting, like, visual metaphors and everything like that. And he walks mm-hmm. by, like, these, like, mushrooms. Um, I don't know. I really enjoyed that, how they set this up. Although I do wish that they kind of maybe had a stinger in the beginning. That would be more modern day to have him fight kind of another creature. Yeah. And there's also a lot of mythos that they just kind of, like, are showing you and not, like, you know, you don't know this character, but right away you assume that there's, like, three or four movies before this, and they'll be like three or four after this like this is definitely like hammer's attempt at a new series mm-hmm. uh, yeah I, I would agree like because these are definitely like almost pre-established characters yeah. um and the rules are all different for vampires yeah, like i said they always change the rules on them yeah the uh, you know they it's like they, they even say like oh there's different species of vampires and and there's one particular scene where a guy gets turned to a vampire and they're trying to figure out what kind of vampire he is and they're just torturing this guy. Like, they impale him. They hang him. Well, they, they, they're trying to figure out a way to kill him. Because yeah. there's different, kind of like the night breed. All kinds of different yeah. breed. All kinds of way to kill him. Fire for some, you know, bullets for others. <laughs> so they're just basically torturing him. And also, this kind of reminded me of something that... Another movie that... Um, this one, because I'm doing the dive in 85, came out in 85. Mr. Vampire. How they had the weird mythos. And how they were trying to, like, cure him of his vampirism and everything like that. Mm-hmm. By putting him in sticky rice. So it was kind of wild like that. So I see like inspir- that it inspired kind of like that Mr. Vampire and I definitely see inspirations to the Fright Night series again mm-hmm. with the different kind of styles of rules and vampires. Yeah. So I mean it, it's it's and I like that it people say it's kind of like a swashbuckling like sword pirate kind of deal because Yeah, there's definitely some sword fi- sword fighting sword play in it. Um and there's also so they you know a lot of movies a lot of horror movies would be accused of doing this kind of thing where they introduce a character and then two seconds later they kill him. This one actually sets up these goons in a bar like and, and for like a few minutes and they're really kind of established and the main goon you think's going to be this heavy and he's he's an actor who's in a bunch of stuff you'd recognize him but he's really good in it and he's just a complete asshole. He's in Theater of Blood. I think he's one of the critics that Vincent Price goes after. Um so uh, he's oh, he might be the hero in Theater of Blood. He's in Theater of Blood. I know that. But he ends up he might be the guy with the, the fencing i think he is i think he is in theater i think he fights vincent price with a sword if i'm remembering correctly uh, i'll have to recheck when we watch theater of blood later next year but um <coughs> regardless he's like this asshole in this bar and they establish him and it's perfect and then like a little bit later you know he runs in the chronos it's not like right away right. i mean it's, it's literally like 10 15 minutes later so you already know these characters and you know they're going to run into each other so so i like that i like his helper i like that you know instead of the hunchback guy being like the villain or the bad guy he's actually kind of a really sympathetic good guy yeah. i like that too um and the hero's pretty cool he's pretty unique and and carolyn monroe has never looked better no no she she's fantastic she's, in it she's great in it too and i like that she um there's a great line that she says here where she's like um i'd like to stay with you if you'll have me and he's like oh i'll have you <laughs> and i was like yeah <laughs> but uh i mean it's 
they're both like it's a pretty sexy scene, pretty sexy relationship for 1974. I think it was a 74 one. Mm-hmm. I think it's good. You know, I I think it's better. You know, on the second watch, this wasn't the first time watch for me, so it gets it gets better, and it felt different than the other Hammer movies. It definitely feels different. It doesn't feel like a Hammer movie. I I mean, the setting seems very Hammer like, but the locations are different to me. They don't they're not the same locations we've seen. Yeah, they but are, I, but they shoot them different. I guess. Right. Yeah, they're not the same. You know, they they. I'm sorry. The locations look new. The movie feels almost like it's pulpy, like like we're talking about comic like book. It, like it should have some pre-existing yeah. property or like yeah, like it was based off a comic line or something yeah. or established character. Um, you know, this is the first time I watched it, and you know, there. While I'm aware of what's going on in the movie, like I had a hard time like following it, and I don't know if it's just the way that the scenes were shot. Um. Or, or just because the characters don't have much dialogue. Like, like there's scenes where they're, where they're talking to each other, yeah, but everything's just kind of, like, disjointed. And I'm supposed to already have some sort of pre-existing idea of what something is. I kind of like that they just throw you in there. So many movies have to have, like, 45 minutes of, you know, to, we know what a vampire is right. at this point. And, and there's a nice little shout-out at the very end to a pre-establishing kind of, um, you know, uh, property in the hammer thing at yes. the very end, which I liked. Um like I said, his his main enemy or his main focus ends up being this like really rich family with like a sickly mother who looks really old and she doesn't go out in public and uh, these kind of brother and sister and you suspect it's one of them who's, right. who's the kind of like a life force vampire so you really don't know who and there, there's like a long like you know family lineage and stuff and they go in that which is really cool and the house looks super weird their house yeah. is really decorated strangely and painted strangely like a, um like I said almost like a you said it was like royal blue or purple mm-hmm. kind of like everywhere so um like i said this one was probably you know a better on second viewing I, I there's not much complaints about it and i also love how they realize that uh what will kill the vampires this strand of vampire <laughs> is steel and how they get their steel <laughs> sword is wonderful and highly illegal and, sa- and um sacrilegious I would right imagine. <laughs> absolutely i don't want to give that scene away just because well, like when you're watching it i was like you're like did they just i was like yeah I think yeah they did. yeah they committed like five crimes to like, <laughs> get this and you're like yeah we're kind of garbage people well it's kind of the brilliant hero uh that i miss i really miss Mm -hmm. the brilliant hero that is equal parts religious and scientific right and they just don't have them anymore uh and and like they'll usually separate them a lot of times but um, uh, rarely will they connect them like a van helsing was a very good religious scientific character like Mm -hmm. he approached the situation analytical but he also had faith in god and i think that those kind of heroic types are kind of like a lost art, you know, yeah. like the um, the almost I would say like the warrior priest or something like that. They just don't exist anymore in in film because you know either religion is always portrayed. It, it becomes a political statement in the right movie now, which is you know I don't know if it's unfortunate. It's just the way it is. But um, I don't see anything really political in this except that again, rich uh, people are pretty bad in the Hammer movies for the most part. Occasionally you get um, some decent ones like. Like uh, Christopher Lee in the um, one where he, uh, I think it's a Gorgon. He was pretty good in that yeah. one and and stuff like you know Captain Chrono seems like he comes from money at the same time. But I would give this a, a really hearty recommend. Unfortunately, my I did order the Shout Factory one. It didn't come in time. It came today. 
and we watched it yesterday, so that was unfortunate. It had some mail trouble. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised they're even shipping stuff still, so we, I guess I'm grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, we watched it on Amazon Prime, and it looks spectacular on Prime. Yeah, it looked, it, it looked it great. It looked even better than just HD, so I don't know where the print is. There's a lot of good oldie movies on Amazon Prime. You want to check them out. I know they have some other Hammer stuff. But, I, like I said, I really liked it. Next week is um, Frankenstein and the Creature from Hell, the last of the uh, Hammer Frankenstein movies, and then we're done. And it's the second to last Peter Cushing movie, I think. Is it? And we have one more Lee still, right? Yeah. Yeah, two Lees. Two we have no, two Lees. No, we have two Cushings and one Lee. Sorry, two there is another and Cushing. one Lee. Yeah. Um, I, I guess we're going to read the review. Yeah. Okay. And also, right. you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about this. Jeremy, for some reason, wants to rank all 60 movies we watched in order. And I don't. I think I want to give a top 20 and a bottom 5 and keep it at 25. You know, t- mentions at the year end of when we do the hammer because we're going to talk about some of our favorites at the end, of course, and give some right. awards like best actor, best actress, best director, and things like that. I don't want to rank all sixty. I can you said even... it. You no. said it. Like we should rank all of them at like like when we were in the middle of this, and I'm like, all right, we're not. We're I prob- was just talking. We're going to do even... the top twenty and the bottom five, probably. No, we're going to do a top one and the <laughs> bottom one because I don't remember half of these. We'll, we'll go over it. Stop. Um, I'm going to read from, um, I, I would give this um, a 7.5 out of 10. I really liked it. Pushing okay. close to 8. So I'm going to give, out of, I'm going to read, out of, geez, I'm not, I'm not making any sense right now, but uh, <laughs> Creature Features by John Stanley. Um, and this is Captain Gronos, Vampire Hunter. He puts it at 72 here. So 3.5 out of 5, exciting hammer actioneer, also known as Vampire Castle and Kronos. Horse Jansen is the dedicated Kronos who embarks and an, um, Keotaic hunts, like Don Quixote, hmm. tick, hunts for bloodsuckers with hunchback Professor Gross. Writer-director Brian Clemens creates a blend of satire and swashbuckling action with overtones of an old-fashioned serial. That's right. Yeah. Uh, exotic, or erotic, it's exotic, Carolyn Monroe is Kronos' helper. Sorry. <laughs> it's like, remember that <laughs> Simpsons? Ooh, erotic cakes. I'm as dumb as Homer Simpson. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So, um, Terror on Tape by some bloke. James O'Neill. It's not a bloke. Maybe <laughs> Uh, Captain Colonel's Vampire Hunter, he gives it three out of four. Yeah, I think that's very book good. Is. He says nine seventy-three. See. Um ninety-one minutes, some people's names. Underrated Hammer Vampire Adventure, the Captain Jansen is a swashbuckling swordsman out to eradicate the plague of vampirism from the world, in this case battling a monster that drains youth, not blood, from its victims. Haunting visuals like flowers wilting as a vampire passes. A good sense of humor and a fine cast, including Monroe in her best role, distinguish this from the rest of the herd, aka Kronos. Yeah, um, I, I didn't read that one, but I, I like sometimes when like you you read it and they back up what you say. Yeah, and a lot of times that's mm-hmm. nice, um, or they remind you of something you forgot about. So, I I I would give this three and a half out of five. I think that. Watching the prior Hammer films, this is almost like a compilation of them. Because we have a lot of different ideas that are presented in Hammer. Like, as as a, as a series as a whole. You know, Hammer isn't a continuous series. Yeah. But, like, as a studio as a whole, they took a lot of their ideas and they put it into Captain Kronos. There's the vampire family that's revealed in the end. Um, there's elements of like like Doctor Frankenstein and the Dracula series, um, a, a lot of like like the Victorian Gothic stuff that we've been watching. Like it, it becomes apparent in this movie, and 
I think that I appreciate it more having watched a lot of these earlier yeah. Hammer films. So you're saying it's like you gotta hide your love away by the Beatles? Kind of like paying homage to the old songs and mixing them all together and kind of just spitting out something completely new? I, I, I don't know anything about the Beatles. <laughs> I'm just, that's one of the songs I really like. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyways, uh, I really like it. Um, I haven't got a chance to dive into the um, Screen Factory release, but it has like a 70s feature. It has like a featurette on there and stuff. So um, yeah, I would recommend uh, checking this one out uh at least check it out on prime and if you love it buy the blu-ray i mm -hmm. would recommend it um i don't know if it'll make my top 20 we saw a lot of cool movies very rarely is there any i never went under two and a, i never went under five for any of them and most of them are over six so i this won't make my top 20 yeah all right but well, it's good yeah. but it won't be my top okay. 20 we're out of here all right bye in the 18th century in Central Europe, a black terror swept across the face of the land. The curse of vampirism, which had been a half-forgotten memory for hundreds of years, returned with a fury that struck unholy fear into the hearts of every man, woman, and child. <laughs> One man dared to make a stand against this evil epidemic. One man dared to hurl a challenge of cold steel against the terror of the undead. He was Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. It is commonly supposed that a vampire attacks in only one way by biting the neck and draining the victim of blood. The girls you spoke of, they were not drained of blood, but of youth, of life itself. You see, he's been bitten on the mouth. God's sake, I survived the vampire's bite. He is not the man you are. I'm doomed. My soul will never end in torment. will be yours, yours. Her youth will pulse through your veins, my darling, replenishing, restoring. Take her. At your service, sir. To the death. guys we get to the questions this week we have nick moore and it, as illness can screw with other senses which of your five senses couldn't you possibly live without my sight definitely couldn't live without my sight what is the highest number of movies you've ever watched in a single day that's tough 
Um, I know I've done four. I'm sure I've done five. It's probably been six. Um, when you're a kid, though, and you're staying home, sometimes you'll watch five or six movies back in the day and not even notice. You know, I'm sure it's probably somewhere like five or six. Um, I've never done one of these all-night movie-thons or anything like that. So, yeah. Actors often come from acting families. Which actor slash actress do you feel is actually worthy of the family name? And which actor slash actress is crap at their job despite coming from good acting stock? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, oh, geez. I think that uh, if we're caught, uh, talking about siblings, I think that Chris and Sean Penn are both pretty good. I love Chris Penn. Um you know, I think somebody like Eric Roberts is actually underrated. Um, families, um, the Arquettes, you got uh, David. I know their family came from acting. David and Patricia Arquette. Actually, all the Arquettes are, are fairly solid. I don't see really a horrible link in any of that where one was too horrible. Uh, geez, I'm trying to think of, um, oh, I really like, um, geez, I, I can't think of his name off the top of my head for some reason, but he's great. Brendan Gleeson, I actually adore. I think he's great. And I think his son, Domhnall Gleeson, I think he's poor. Uh, I don't even think he's that bad of an actor. He just bores me. He's just one of those actors I see on the screen, and I'm like, not doing anything for me. So there's one. Uh, Brendan Gleeson's tremendous, and I don't think his son is nearly the actor he is. Um, then we have people like John Wayne and his son. You know, they were fine. They never really took off like I think that they probably wanted them to. Patrick Wayne, I think it is. So, And I haven't seen that much he's in, but i never seen any of the movies where he was in where I was like, oh, he's terrible. So, you know, um, I would give Dom Hill Gleason. That's the one I would say. Um, and then we have answers. And basically, I ask you some underrated YouTubers. Viper Rose. Um, so basically, sometimes these people add more than just the answer in there. And sometimes I feel like reading that as well. So I will. Uh, Viper Rose, 1978. Oh, wow, well, you seriously seem annoyed with Jeremy on Fright Night. I totally get your point. And like you, I am a, at work every day. It's a crazy time and totally with you on hazard pay. It's not the easiest time to be a medic, but those are the breaks, I guess. I'm not really sure of any underrated YouTuber. I think every YouTuber is technically underrated as much of you have the balls to do something I won't. And I'm an artist in my personal life. I probably have the same amount of movies you do, but I am too lazy after work to review and show them to any, everyone. You guys have essentially created your own TV shows that don't depend on ratings. That's ultra cool. Stay safe keep up the good videos they definitely help pass some downtime thank you man and keep safe out there as a medic should be definitely get hazard pay um hudson tom e walnuts very underrated youtuber he does a bit of everything but mostly horror and figures and soundtracks is it walruts or walnuts you put walruts i always thought it was walnuts i'm not surprised you're not feeling it watching all these movies every week it can turn into a slog you're probably burnt out why don't you take a break we'll still be here when you get back just chill with your feet up, a few beers, and a movie. Thanks. Yeah, Toddy Walnuts buys a lot of stuff, and he shows it off in a nice way, too. He's good. Um, Irish Mad Dog, 1987. Can't really think of uh, one underrated YouTuber in particular. Explosive Action is a great channel. Horror in uh, TOJ. Um, oh, I love Explosive Action. I, I, I really get, need to get back to watching more videos. I remember he, he does a great job. Um, Horror in TOG. That's just abbreviated. I can't think of what it is. Horrific Nightmares. Um, Eastwood for Life fan. Cinema Maniac 77 all come to mind. Carly has come a long way. Her reviews get better all the time. All great channels that film fans need to check out. Um, if you guys want links to any of these, go to my Facebook page. People posted links for all of them. So under that question, you'll find it pretty easy. Um, Nick Mua. Don't know if I'm enough of a YouTube kind of sort of judge who's underrated, but I think Red Letter Media, Jay and Mike should get more love. Um, they get a lot of love, but uh, they are pretty good. Um, they review a wide variety of films, both studio and indie, and an occasional TV show. They do their reviews with with style, occasionally adding a little comedy acting segments, or they invent, invent interesting guests to co-host, i.e. Pat Oswald, Macaulay Culkin. They do catch a lot of flack because they're very outspoken and seem to have distaste for celebrity woke culture um okay 
Then we have Adrian Hall, Preston McDowell, um, Jim Blunt, Tanner James. Tanner is great. Uh, Mike Mitchell, Brendan Tennard, uh, Jason Patrick. Oh, wait, sorry. He says, this guy literally kills me. Um, and he posts a video of this Ghoulies rant to get you in the end, 80s horror movie, Mountaintop 9. I have seen that guy before. He's pretty good. Jeremy Freeman, he posts a video of Weekend Fright, who makes a comedy video. David Luton says, me. Jason Lindbergh, um, you. Don't really have a list. I have this, those, I'm old. Tony of the Dead posts Tony of the Dead. And uh, Jason Patrick, since everyone is shouting themselves out, I say these two are underrated. And he posted a video of him, of uh, hers and his movie night uh, YouTube channel, All Night Horror Movie Marathon. Zach Killingsworth, Dan Bell, Sean Donahue, Beth Ann, um, Tyler Miller, Chip Parton, miss his updates. I think this is kind of fun because Chip Parton actually replied. Um, haven't heard of them also, but I've uh, been acting active in collecting recently. I did score an Aru films on VHS last year, which is a huge deal for me. But most everything else is the usual, like Arrow and Blue Underground and Severn. I would never sell this collection. Um, I wish I had time to keep hunting down all the rare limited releases I used to. I have a few cars I'm restoring and I have to build my house. Then hopefully I can ease back into it. I really do miss it. I still love that community a lot. So that's really cool, Chip Parton. I remember he used to review on uh, the DVD Fiends. Uh, Ryan Matthew Ziegler posts uh, Malevolent Movies and Chase the Heat. Andrew McLeod posts View World Cinema. Thomas Filano, my buddy brother Max, who used to run Two Ton Nerds, now has a channel. It has more than just horror, video games, music, uh, I mean, movie, books, whatever he wants to talk about. The one and only MSJ. That's the channel name. Henry Freon Leons, me. Everybody's making jokes like that. Um, Daryl Marsh, Dead Bug says. Um, then Henry Frias Leon says, I would vote for Dave Parka for always being awesome. Blu-ray DVD reviews, your updates, you are a legend. Thank you. Randall McDougall post himself, Randallson44. Wayne Wright, Seth Poland. Seth Poland is very good. Celluloid tear. Um, Timothy Tahoe Callen. Sean Frankie Slauson, my son. Andy Nett Frost uh, Carson's Descent into Horror Hell. Marco Vintian, cool duder. And then he puts a little wink. Um, Stefan Rubens, Tanner James. Tanya Torrance, Dr. Wolfula. Um, Tom Brunner, I pretty much hate YouTubers. You and Mummy and the Monkey are the only ones I look at. She's pretty cool. She does a kind of horror host thing on YouTube. Um, Jonathan Doe, a shout out would be greatly appreciated. And he posts his channel, uh, Cinema's Underbelly. Jason Fredders, Chris Seaver, check it out. Check his It Crept from the 80s series. And Mr. Tony the Dead also puts Candy Corn Apocalypse. Jason Johnson, Inside Movies Galore, David Strig. Strig? S-T-R-E-G-E, -E, Strig. Um, Zach Puccinelli, Movie Guy 666. This page is sticking together. There we go. Uh, Mark Humphreys, uh, you as you do proper reviews, but I also watch Retro Horror, Moods, Serial at Midnight, and Terror for Tom a lot, but I don't know who's underrated on... Um, Unrated or not. Uh, Brian Gatto, The Cinema Masochist, Good or Bad, Good, Bad Flicks, Ray Animator Reviews, Meat Hook, uh, Confused Reviews, Dave Maggot, and of course, Her Show Host, my channel. And he says, despite having nearly 80,000 subs, I recently started reviewing movies on my channel and looking for more of an audience. Um, then we have um, Jake Perry, Most Underrated, Eric Exton, God in a Machine on YouTube. He also posts Official Submachine, and Jason Hobbs posts It's a Tie, um, The Whore Man or David Maggot McDonald, and M.D. Mags. 
Andre Scott, Rambo Ralph for Life, and OCP Communications are two of my favorites. And then I have some old answers here. Let me find this. And this is from Viper Rose 1978. Um, and he was answering basically, um, this is just some information I put. Well, back-to-back -back weeks with a movie in my top five. What can I say about Death Wish 3? It's a total action movie in my eyes, so over the top it's amusing. I think the thing I love about Bronson in this is his humor. Even when he's trying not to be funny and is still a badass at his age. Why do I love indie movies? This is the answer. The cheese and the overall creati creativity that is needed to be needed because the filmmakers usually don't have the money the big studios do so they have to improvise more it's just easier to take my eyes than some big budget cgi filled film and then we have some information which are basically some uh comments i wanted to read that i thought were fun or informative or heartfelt or something btk Thank you for the 1985 reviews. 1985 was a huge year for me as a 19-year-old breaking free from parents and moving to a different part of the country. Ended up in a larger city with greater ease for seeing movies, especially older B-movies and horror and repertory theaters. Then we have, he says, I'm always happy to see your weekly posts on YouTube, especially now with the crisis we're all experiencing. Thank you. Heads up, if you have a region free player, Arrow UK site having a sale that just started, I move quickly because sometimes some titles in their sales sell out fast. I did order like eight, but I, I cashed my arrow points too. And I didn't even reg register I had the arrow points. I actually cashed my arrow points and got 21 pounds off. So that's how much I over the years I've ordered from them. Ilk Vomit, I'm with Jeremy on Fright Night. Uh, a lot of my big love for the heavy hitters and horror come from the fact that I have nostalgia attached to them. When I was growing up, I don't ever recall my parents renting Fright Night. In fact, I didn't really get acquainted with the movie until I was 17 or 18. I like the movie, but I just don't have don't love it. But I feel I should, but I just don't. LOL. I know the feeling. Sometimes it happens. Um, the question of the week is um, to keep you guys like busy and to learn some more podcasts. I want to know what the most underrated podcast is. Um, so just shoot out some underrated podcasts for me. I'm going to read off the just 20 podcasts I listen to. Um, not necessarily underrated or anything like that. But if you guys are bored at home or need something to listen to, I'm going to give you 20 podcasts that I listen to. Um, we have some big ones like Shockwaves. No, no order either. Pure Cinema Podcast. The Movies That Made Me. The last podcast on the left. Um, Shockwaves is great. I'll just go over a little bit about them. They have a, a four host, uh, tremendous. Been listening to them for years, formerly Killer POV. Pierce Cinema Podcast um, is, is also tremendous. They cover all sorts of movies. I found out about some real gems on that. The movies that made me is um, Joe Dante and, geez, I can't believe I forgot his name. He wrote History of Violence. Um, they, they basically do a podcast where they invite people on there and they talk about movies that they uh, made their careers and everything that, like, you know, that they loved growing up. Like, podcast left is a serial killers and a cult kind of podcast very big everybody knows it bloody good horror is a fairly mainstream uh, horror review web uh, site it has some pretty funny you know people on there i've always enjoyed hearing them very if you want to hear like a pg rated show go with them they're very good 20 and we have some horror failure shows 22 shots of moods and horror one of my favorites i guessed it on there lots of good guys moods jp jeremy Exploding Heads podcast when uh, strictly Patreon, but listen to their old stuff and see if you want to donate to their Patreon. Very good show. Very good guys. Very good back and forth. The Watt Z podcast, uh, Dave Z and Watson. Uh, they both have, come from different podcasts. Very good. Very new podcast. Um, I think they're on like episode 13 or something. Very good. Very informative. Cut into like four parts. Good stuff. The Horror Corridor which is about to end. It's a uh, Mr. Watson podcast. He dives deep and covers subjects and everything like that. Really well produced, really well thought out. Bloody Bits, which is basically just a bunch of, you know, people from other podcasts coming together to review a bunch of VOD titles. It's, it's ran by Jason Lloyd, who runs Horror Mafia. Good show. Um, the Horror Mafia itself, who runs Horror, um, Horror Philia, not Horror Mafia. Sorry about that. Um, if I said Horror 
uh, Mafia last time. The Horror Mafia, which is also a decent podcast, really good stuff, really funny. Enjoy it. Um, it's been in hiatus for a while, but uh, some of the other guys popped out, Joey and Bill, and they're doing another podcast on the side, so check that out too. The Horrorcast, uh, ran by Mark Nato and a bunch of people on there. They cover a lot of newer movies, and then they do like they're doing a Hammer segment, which I like. Obviously, I'm doing the same thing. Um, that's one of the uh, shows I would listen to to hear about newer horror movies. Because if anybody sees any more newer new horror mo- more new horror movies than Mark Nato, I don't believe them because this guy watches all the new movies, everything. Um, Cinema Attack, which is Derek uh, B's show, uh, Derek Bourgeois, uh, also has Matt Canner on there and W Doubles. They they do all sorts of things on there, different kinds of movies. They also have a uh, Cinematic Autopsy, which are Cinematic Dissection. I can't remember, but it's another like sister podcast. It's on the same you know feed. Also a good show. His and hers horror movie podcast. JP and Carly do a nice uh, you know they dive in a lot of newer movies and they talk a little bit about stuff they've been doing and watching everything like that. It's a nice couple you know kind of show. They're Here is a cool podcast that just came out. I've been listening to that a lot lately. It has Derek B. and uh, Lucy Lacey Lou on there. That's pretty cool. Um, I like sometimes that they'll pick movies for each other. I always dig that. Um, the podcast Under the Stairs. I just started listening to them recently. Man, and the guy on there, Duncan uh, McLeish, I believe is his name. Scottish guy. They, he does a lot of stuff. Puts a lot of content out. Uh, good voice. And uh, his Summer of Fear, like summer shows where they cover like a whole decade, was tremendous. They did like the arguments of the 90s and everything like that. Really like that. Coast to Coast Film Reviews, which is David Gibson's show. I dig that one. They'll do like top shows and have guests occasionally. It's pretty fast-paced, pretty entertaining, good stuff. Just the Disc, uh, Brian Sauer's other podcast. He also does uh, Pure Cinema Podcast with Elric Kane. Just the Disc is fun. They talk about new releases and dive into the special features. Um, the Screamcast, which has Stephanie Crawford on there. Love her. Also has Brad Henderson. He's really good. And, uh, geez, I can't think of the other guy's name. Is I feel bad because I listen to the show all the time. It's probably because I haven't heard an episode in quite some time, but very good show, very enjoyable. And The Last Daughters of Darkness, which is Sam Deegan, Cat Ellinger's show. I don't even know if it's still running. But it was on the Diabolique um, website, I think, and that was a tremendous podcast. They dive, they do commentaries and everything, so they're really well educated in horror and everything. And their their podcasts were very good at the same time. So I hope you guys enjoyed that top or just twenty podcasts to listen to. I'm not going to link them all, but uh, the the names are pretty easy to find on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you have podcast feeds for. But I guess we're going to hop into the update. Okay, let's hop into this. Fairly decent size update. First, we have Arrow's release of Beyond the Door. This is like a collector's edition. Evil Grows Beyond the Door. Yeah, has a Blu-ray and a booklet in there. Got a bunch of features. Limited two disc. Got two versions on there. Well, this book is pretty awesome. Got a good price on it. So, sold out pretty quick, actually. Man, this thing's nice. You know, I've actually never seen it. A lot of the Exorcist ripoffs were never really my thing. So I never uh, watched that many of them. I mean, I love, like, some possession movies, like Evil Speak, but... I really do need to watch this. I've seen the sequels. Well, they, uh, you know, those funny, weird sequels like, what is it? Uh, Shock is one, and uh, Amok Train is one. I don't even know why, but they are. I've seen both of those, but I've never watched the original Beyond the Door, which is kind of weird. It's going to take me a while to put this bad boy together, back together. I don't want to just throw it all together. Got to be delicate with it. Man, that's a nice box and everything like that. Like I said, so if you want this, grab it quick before it goes out of print. Then we have a bunch from the Target sale. 
They had the buy two, get one, which is an amazing sale. So you get, I got uh, the killing time with Kiefer Sutherland. It's got Joe Don Baker and Bo Bridges in there too. Not seeing this. Looks like a thriller, Scorpion Kino. Then uh, I always pick up my Scream Factories on the Target buy one, get one, or the Hamilton book sale. So we got Pet Cemetery 2. Yeah, I just couldn't pay $25, $30 for this, so I waited. I'm glad. Uh, I always enjoyed this one as a kid. Not seen it in a long time. Love Edward Furlong, but I, I love Clancy Brown more. Yeah, I remember it being cheesy, but hey, been a while. Exorcist 2, The Heretic. Um, yeah, I heard nothing good about this movie, really. I heard it's fairly interesting, though, on the Just the Disc podcast, so uh, I decided to uh, grab it, and I got a good deal on it. And I have one and three in good editions, so I better have two, right? And I am interested. If I if I do watch it, I want some context in it. Job Borman's directed a lot of good movies, so I, I don't know how, how bad it can be. Um, we have Dreamscape. Finally got this one. Always wanted this edition. Never saw this movie, you know? I know it has some weird, crazy dream stuff in there. David Patrick Kelly's the bad guy. I think it predates. Um, is David Patrick Kelly the bad guy in this one? There he is, yeah. He is in there. So is Christopher Plummer's also in there. I know it predates Nightmare on Elm Street. It came around the same time, so cool. Then we got uh, Metal Storm. The Destruction of Jared Sin. I wanted to see this one, too. Again, Scream Factory release. Got a good deal on it, finally. Was super happy to grab this one. Experience the future in 3D. Then we have Warning Sign. Watched the DVD of this recently. Like this one. It's another Scream Factory. Finally got upgraded. This is a pretty solid thriller horror movie. Like it. Good stuff. Then we have Lake Placid. Haven't seen this since... I think I saw this in the theater was the last time I saw this movie. Um, I was always okay with it. A lot of people liked it a lot more than me. So I, I think if I rewatch it, maybe I'll get more of the humor and dig it. Um, it was a good price, though, and I wanted to recheck it out. So There's Brandon Gleason. I was just talking about him. Tremendous actor. Then we have Windows. This sounded right up my alley. Alley. Somebody loves Emily too much. What a great name. I love that cover, too. I know this movie got flack from the LGBT community when it came out, along with Cruising. And I love Cruising, so um, I, I don't know. Maybe I'll like this one, too. I mean, I, I don't care. Like, There's a lot of characters that are portrayed negatively, and I don't know if it's supposed to be taken as offensive, you know. But hey, sometimes people take it the way they do. We have Tarantula which uh, Jeremy picked as one of his 26 movies for uh, next season. Not seen this one. Giant spider strikes, crawling tear, 100 feet high. One of these atomic age horror movies. Then we got a double feature of Love at First Bite and Once Bitten. I know you guys, I remember I hate it. I don't like Once Bitten, but uh, I'm pretty sure this one's going out of print soon. A lot of the MGM ones are, so uh, and I am interested in Love at First Bite. So why the hell not? So, good price on that. And I guess we're going to hop back to the video. All right, I just wanted to have a Patreon shout-out to Travis Wright. Thank you again uh, for joining the Patreon. I know I was a little late on that shout-out, but I hope that's all right. Um, I want to say thank you guys very much for watching. As always, you guys have a good one. Mm.